6: Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart. And today it's it's it, there there's there's a little bit of them getting put back together, but today's mostly them falling apart. Um I'm your host Christopher Wong. With me I have Lucy who is a teacher in Chicago Public Schools and is part of the teachers union. And today we're going to be talking about just the absolute shit show that is being inflicted on teachers and students in Chicago Public Schools. And Lucy, how how are you, how are you doing?
7: Um you know, it's, it's been kind of weird, but all in all, I'm in good spirits. I think my sisters and brothers in CTU are in good spirits, so we're going to keep fighting the good fight.
6: Hell yeah. So b- before before we fully start to get into the teachers union and Lori Lightfoot's fuckery, I, I want to sort of get a bit of context for people f- who don't live in Chicago or just don't know much about only politics because... Lori, you know, if, if if you read sort of like media accounts of this, like you 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 may be sort of misled into into thinking that there's like even some semblance of good faith going on here from Lori Lightfoot, and like I just I just want to like do a great like a Lori Lightfoot greatest hits reel for a second. So Lightfoot, like immediately after she got elected, like the the, one of the like the first thing she does is she 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 literally she's like, okay, there's too much crime on the subway, we're gonna put SWAT teams on them, and so you know you just be on the red line, and there's a SWAT team. And you know because again, this is what happens when you put a SWAT team on the fucking subway. They immediately shot a dude in the back for nothing. He was just literally no reason. They just shot him in the back. Um, so that that was like that was like like the the first like few weeks of, of Lightfoot. And then during the uprising, she like she she turned the rich part of Chicago into like a medieval castle. Like she like, like like raised all the drawbridges into the middle of the city so that no one could get into the central part of the city. It was like it was awful. And then you know then. As 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 we sort of like, there, there's more and more sort of bad Lightfoot stuff. Uh, most recently, so Chicago got a, a, a bunch of aid money from the federal government, and she spent two hundred and eighty one million dollars of it paying the police,
7: not the schools. Yeah, nope. And uh, yeah.
6: CPD, like these again. I I I think I've talked about this before, but like when when the CIA was like our initial torturing program failed, where do we go? To like find people who know how to torture, they brought in the Chicago police detective, like and you know and, and this is the you know, CPD like like there's there's two halves of CPD right there's there's like the torture CPD and then related to them but not necessarily identical is the part of the CPD that's just a cartel. Like there there was there was a thing in in at uh, the, the beginning of the uh, the 2010s where like it turned out that like the almost like the like, huge parts of the CPD were literally just a cartel. They were running drugs. They were just like doing shakedowns for and and like one person total like got arrested by the fbi for and everyone else is just still there it's great it's a it's a time so this is this is who lori lightfoot is um she sucks like everyone hates her like like her the people who should be her political allies hate her like chicago chicago got like a police reform bill and the reason it was like a very mild one but the reason it happened was just that like like the like the, the alderman passed it out of just pure spite because of how much they don't like lightfoot so this is this is the this has been my my Christopher Shouts at Lurry Lightfoot <laughs> <laughs> intro to this. But yeah, needless to say, Lightfoot not acting in good faith, just absolutely all Batman awful. villain. Yeah, it's, a Batman <laughs> villain. <it's
7: laughs> incredible. No, actually that's not fair because a lot of Batman villains are kind of right. Yeah. She's not
6: <laughs> Yeah, she, she 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 she's she she's like the nightmare fusion of like Batman and a Batman villain. It's like what? What if what if like the worst <laughs> aspects of both, and then made them the mayor? It's it's a yeah.
7: yeah. I I've been kind of um, so I I moved here uh, almost a year ago from a smaller city, and I did not like the mayor in my city, and he he really was a big fan of like the Lori Lightfoot playbook, but um, I guess people weren't as politically involved there. And my first week working in Chicago Public Schools, um, somebody mentioned the mayor, mentioned Lori, and everybody kind of groaned. And I, I was like, oh, you don't like her? You don't like your mayor? And I mean, I knew they didn't, but I was just kind of testing the waters. And this lady looks at me and goes, we hate her. <laughs> I swear, like if you mention her name, yeah." In this city, people practically spit on the ground. It's like it's amazing because again, like like, like Chicago, you mentioned a, a demon.
6: Yeah, it's like like Chicago. Chicago, notoriously, we all hate our politicians. But like Lightfoot, like like there there were you would find Rahm Emanuel supporters, right? Like
7: Lightfoot, is I don't just know like, a single lawyer like. like Outside of the schools, within the schools, everyone I know... Yeah, there, they, it's like, even, even, the
6: cop, even the cops don't like her. Like, she just she keeps, she keeps funneling hundreds of like, billions of dollars <laughs> into them, and they still don't like
7: her. It's like, it's incredible. How do you unite the teachers union and the police union on something? <laughs> it's the only thing that they've ever agreed on is, fuck Lori Lightfoot. <laughs> yeah, it's,
6: it's, it's really incredible. Uh, so, Lori Lightfoot's latest scheme. Um, Yeah, do you want to explain... I guess go go back a little bit in in into the history of sort of how how Chicago and Chicago Public Schools have kind of been responding to COVID and then how they just did this stuff and yeah I guess like yeah give, give us some background like what's going on right now
7: Well I'm going to preface with two things one I am fairly new here so I don't know all of the details And two, I really want to emphasize that I'm just here talking for myself. I don't represent CTU in any way. This is just, I wanted to talk about my feelings on things. So um, what I do know is they were doing remote learning. And when I arrived here in March, we were fully remote. And um, then in the fourth marking period, so like around, like after spring break, um, we moved to a hybrid model. So we had parents and kids could like choose if they wanted to stay online or if they wanted to be in person. Um, I think like 60% or more, depending on what school, um, chose the online option. Like a lot of parents just were not comfortable putting their kids in. Yeah. Um, I know that there's been like a ton of talk about, um, you know, like the most economically disadvantaged families need the schools open, but it's kind of been the reverse. It's been the people who have um, more means are more interested in opening and people who uh, are less well-off are a little more resistant to it. I mean, that's not the same across the board. I don't Mm -hmm. want to generalize too much, but that's been what I've seen. Um, I think if I had to guess it, there's a lot of history behind that. Like, um, I mean, first of all, just, can your family afford an illness like this? And people living in multi generational households. And I think something that CPS and our government in general really fail to acknowledge is just how how much mistrust there is between government institutions, public schools, yeah. and um people of color. I mean, for good reason. You know, they yeah. have been repeatedly just screwed over by these institutions and I can absolutely understand why they might not trust a school district that says hey we'll keep your kids safe because they weren't doing it before the pandemic. Yep. Um so we had uh I had like 7 kids in one of my classes and like 10 in another and then the rest of them were online and I'm like sitting at a computer teaching to the kids online and to the kids in the room. Yeah. All the kids in the room are on their computers too so that we can like still be like one cohesive class. Um It was hard and it was like kind of like mentally fatiguing, like just going back and forth like that. But, you know, we made it work. I was kind of, I was really proud of us. Like we made it work. We made it happen. We stayed in contact with the families and the kids constantly. Um, And like as things moved on and as numbers started going down, more people started warning their kids back. Um, And then after spring break, they, um, well, so like after spring break, they let, People come back and then as we move towards summer more and more kids were coming back, which it was the school I was in was um, handling it very well. Our principal was really committed to like keeping us safe. So there was um, testing like once a week, somebody would come by and be like, yo, go get your COVID test. Um, I don't know if kids were being tested, but I know teachers were. Um, Then summer happens. I ended up in a different school. In the Austin neighborhood, which is um, a lot less advantaged than the one that I had been working in. And we opened back up fully in person. No remote option, like at all. Like if, Yikes. um the only people who could get remote were kids that were deemed medically fragile. But they had to, one, submit like tons of paperwork to prove that. And two, their siblings could not... Jesus. so at that point it's like why what's the point yeah and if you were a teacher who had a medically fragile child in the schools your kid could be remote but you couldn't so then you know how is that going to work yeah um and i found in the school where i was you know this is the issue with chicago and with you know most of the country is some schools have more resources than others and yep. the school I didn't know where to get tested, nobody told me. I think there was some kind of testing program, not sure. Definitely nothing for students. Um, I've since moved to a high school that has more resources, but still I have not been able to figure out where the heck to get testing, which has been one of the biggest things that uh, CTU is asking for is we want um, opt out testing instead of opt in testing. So you would automatically be registered to test and if you didn't want to test, then you would have to opt out, which would end up with far more people getting tested yep. and make it a lot easier because, I mean, a big part of why people aren't signing up is it's really hard. Like, I don't know where to find it. They, everyone's like, it's in your email yeah. somewhere. I've searched my email. I don't know. Like, we get like 800 emails a day. <laughs>
6: like, Yeah. And it's, yeah. Like, you know, I think anyone, anyone who remembers what being in a school is like, those, they have... I mean, just the absolute worst bureaucratic stuff, like, it's, 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 like, honestly, like, it, like, my, my experiences with, like, academia and, like, even back in, like, high school, like, their tech stuff was, like, worse than corporate tech stuff, which is, like, astounding. Mm
7: Mm-hmm. It's, it's ridiculous.
6: Do you want to jump into here, into Lightfoot's, like, Okay, Lightfoot has like invented a new kind of COVID denialism, which is like, <laughs> oh, yeah. like she she she's now turned into a, like a COVID test denialist. Like it's she weird. she it's incredible. Like she she she, has, she went on this rant about how like COVID testing is a quote quasi medical procedure and how you're yeah. going to get lawsuits. Like it's it's bizarre.
7: Like I- so this this <laughs> journalist asked her about the testing because it's and I I don't know which journalist that was, but I want to thank them so much because. <laughs> They I've seen a lot of the reporters are actually out there trying to keep CTU's demands in the conversation, as mm-hmm. opposed to this like whole, oh, lazy teachers don't want to work. Like fuck off. We we do want to be working. Yeah. Um, but so I I almost thought that she had like mixed up what this person said and thought that they were talking about vaccines. But even so, like, stop it stop just stop yeah. doing that but who is having a reaction to a covid test it it's is like literally a q-tip like <laughs> <It's> a q-tip. <laughs> Like you just stick it in. they don't even stick it that far up your nose anymore they just do the little in your nostril or like a mouth smile yeah
6: like and i was just like I, I as someone who had like i like i genuinely did have a kind of bad reaction because the guy jabbed it up really far and like i was like sneezing a lot afterwards but it's like what oh no you sneezed a little bit like what 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 does it even mean like
7: how not like (sighs) i i feel like people are acting like this test is like this weird new technology it is it isn't like right before the pandemic like a couple months before i had the flu and i had exactly the same kind of test they stuck a, a thing up my nose it was hella uncomfortable um it took like two seconds they stuck it on a little plastic thingamabob and said oh looks like you have the flu (laughs)
3: yeah (laughs) it's,
7: it's i don't know where this is coming from i i think it's just she is not a very charismatic person and she's not someone who does well under pressure and right now she's backed into a corner and she's acting out and it's been kind of wild like I've seen she's she's also throwing other people around her under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> like she says something about Pedro Martinez. Like she says, the teachers aren't in charge of this. Pedro Martinez is in charge. She's the CEO. And I'm like, OK, so you're being <laughs> this <laughs> is setting him up to take the blame on this. I saw and- I saw
6: another thing that you tweeted about. Like it was uh, she was like, no, no, it's actually the mayor's. And uh, not the mayor's. Sorry, it's, it's actually the uh, uh, it's the, the principals, principals who are responsible oh. for this. And the principals were like no
7: yeah so cps is kind of interesting um this can be really good or really bad depending on what school you're in but the principals really have a lot of autonomy over their school um i have now been in two schools where that's worked out great my principal rocks um if she ever hears this i hope she knows that i said that i think she's great Um, also the principal I worked at the beginning of the school year was awful. Um, so, but when it comes to like district wide protocols, like that's district wide. And so CPS apparently had a meeting with principals where, um, I heard some rumors about this too, but I also saw that letter that they had posted. Um, the principals are one really frustrated because CPS isn't communicating stuff with them very effectively and so parents will be calling like do we have school tomorrow and they don't know but CTU knows and is telling their members. So the teachers all know the like more answers than the principals do which is obviously really embarrassing <laughs> if you're supposed to be in charge. Um and then they're they were told in this meeting with CPS school's going to be closed on Friday. Okay, school's closed on Friday. Great. Sounds good. And then Lightfoot gets on the dang news and tells everybody that it will be done on a school by school basis at principal's discretion, depending on if they have staff. So now all of these principals who had already told their students and families that um, were closing look like they're the ones who closed it as opposed yeah. like, and that's, I. it is rare for me to feel bad for a school principal because <laughs> that's, that's my boss, you know, I don't yeah. like my boss. Yeah. Um, but I feel bad for them right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, like you're just trying to like make sure that people have the information they need in a timely manner, and this lady is up here making you look like a monster. <laughs> it's so unfair.
6: Yeah. Should we talk about what's been happening and we run up to, to the past sort of winter break and then mm, the stuff that's happening now because it's very grim and bad.
7: Yeah, so a lot of schools have been having COVID cases. Um there's, I'm not really sure what's going on with CPS's data. It kind of seems like they're not reporting it very faithfully or accurately. Like, if you look at their tracker, there'll be cases and then suddenly they'll be gone. Um, we never really get a hard number ever. Like, we'll be like, if you have a student in your class who has been quarantined, I mean, we all know it, what it is, but they don't say it. They'll be like, um, you know, uh, Johnny will be out for the next, X amount of time due to health reasons, please let him join via Google meet. And they never do. That's the other annoying thing is like the students, I think because they are either close contact or they're sick, um, you know, to them, it's like a, a break almost. Like they're not going to log in randomly. Like it's, it's just with, I think with kids, like once it stops being consistent and it's like back and forth all the time, it becomes very difficult for them to stay motivated because they're out of their routine like i i sometimes hate it when people say this but it is kind of true kids kind of thrive on routine um so at this point now i have like a third of my class at any given moment will just not be there and it will be a different third of the class every you know it kind of like rolls through so all of my students are at like different points in the curriculum it's hard to like know what to teach each day because I don't know who needs what it's hard to reach out to the kids that are at home and make sure that they get what they need because I'm so busy trying to catch these kids up and move these kids on and all that stuff um which I have seen some research I'll see if I can find it um after we're done that like pointed out that like Remote learning isn't the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is just flipping back and forth all the time and having huge numbers of kids absent from in-person learning. Mm -hmm. Um, So we go on break. And obviously we have Omicron like sweeping through the country. And we all knew that there were going to be spikes. Like we knew that. And Chicago had what was if illinois had some like astronomically high number of new covid cases like breaking records all over the place um cps has had huge increases
6: yesterday we had 43,984 cases in illinois wow that's, like it's that's a lot <laughs> yeah like
7: <laughs> this is yeah yeah but yeah so over break like the last like the the union had been trying has been trying forever to get CPS to come in and agree to um, a few things. So one in February, we had a um, an agreement that schools would flip to remote if they reached a certain threshold. That agreement has expired and CPS has refused to come to the bargaining table and negotiate a new one. They're just like, no, we don't need it. We also have been trying to get them to do the opt out testing and a like surveillance testing program in school. So we can kind of just have little bits of data to understand like, where are these cases? CPS doesn't want to do this. They don't want a threshold for flipping to remote because then they would have to flip to remote yeah. and they don't want the surveillance testing because then they would have to flip to remote and they just don't want to flip to remote. Yeah. Um. So finally over break, you know, it kind of came to a head, like they were still refusing to negotiate. Like um, one of the, union delegates in my building said something about um they've been meeting they go to these meetings like you know they're like twice a week they try to get these meetings to happen and the mayor never comes and the ceo never comes like they they will either send lawyers or they don't show up and it's like dude sounded so tired and demoralized when he said that i felt bad for him um but yeah so we voted that we were going to go in on monday and tuesday meet with our safety committees, get a feel for what's going on in school. And then we are going to have a vote on Tuesday night as to whether or not we will do a remote work action on Wednesday. And I know a lot of people have been like, trying to make it sound like this was very sudden, but it absolutely wasn't. Like we had a vote about whether or not we were interested in doing this. And then we had a vote on whether we were still interested on having a vote. And then we had the vote and the delegates voted on if they wanted to hold an official, like, should we do an action vote? We did. Um, it was like 70% voted yes. Um, there were some complaints that some people didn't get their ballots, but they did wait till they had enough yes votes to reach that two-third majority that we needed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, CTU has every step of the way really been making sure um. This is actually what we want. This isn't just like unilateral things like Lori keeps throwing that word unilateral around. It wasn't unilateral. It was like at least two thirds of the teachers in this district said, I don't feel safe at school. There's not enough staff in the building right now to even teach half my kids. A third of my kids are out. This isn't working. So, yeah. So we voted that we're going to stay home and work remotely. And then we got locked out.
6: Yeah, which again, like, and, and I want I want to sort of focus on this for a second because, like, even a lot of people who are sympathetic to 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 the teachers' unions on Twitter, you see this a lot. They'll they'll be like, "the the CTU went on strike." And it's like, no, they didn't. Like, it's the, not a the strike. teachers on, teachers are not on strike. The teachers are t- attempting to work from home, and mm-hmm. the school district will not let them.
7: Yeah, it's <laughs> like, it's every morning I get up at six thirty. I make my coffee and I sit down and I try to log in. And I know I won't be able to, but I do it anyway. Um, thankfully I had thought to download as much of my materials as I could <laughs> prior to yeah. this onto my personal device. So I am still able to like create lesson plans, been making some very cool social studies slides. I'm s- so sure that my students are gonna love <laughs> them. <laughs> Lots of cool assignments for them to do too. Um, but yeah, like this is a lockout and Lori keeps throwing this word like illegal work stoppage around it's not a work stoppage we are actively working she has illegally it is in our contract that she can't lock us out and she did so yeah so yeah (laughs) everyone's suing each other and saying illegal but i know which side is right
6: (laughs) yeah yeah you know like i i I am not an enormous respecter of the law but like this is, this is both, it, this is one of the rare occasions where the thing that is happening is both illegal and also just wrong. The, the reporting on this just has not gotten the actual fundamental thing which is happening here, which is a lockout. And it's enormously frustrating in a lot of ways because, you know, and I'd say this, okay, so the, like local media reporting has been a lot better, but any, like any national coverage has just, I've seen, it's just been like, yeah. You know, That's going to be it for part one of this interview. Come come back tomorrow for part two where we will talk more about what's actually going on inside the schools and, you know, generally do the media's job for them because Lord knows they're not actually getting it right. You can find us on Happened Here Pod on Twitter and Instagram, as usual, uh, or you cannot find us. In fact, I I encourage you not to find us because, good Lord, the internet is bad. Uh, Goodbye. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things going badly and falling apart. And today we are back with part two of our interview with Lucy about how the Chicago public school system is falling apart under the relentless assault of cruelty, malice, and incompetence by the Chicago public schools and by the mayor Lori Lightfoot. Enjoy. There's another thing I want to talk about a bit, which is when you've been back, when you've been sort of teaching in in these really like sort of. In these, like what What is it actually like to teach in these classrooms and like, you know, like how, how safe actually is it?
7: So, I mean, I've been in a lot of different environments when I was teaching middle schoolers. I did not feel super COVID safe. Um, they are. I don't, I don't know if people know this about middle school age kids. They love to touch each other, especially boys. They love to like wrestle. They're always putting each other in headlocks. I'm constantly having to just be like six feet six feet apart or three feet or whatever CDC has said we are now. Um, they don't put their masks on. They put their masks in their mouths all the time, like in their mouths. Um, <laughs> oh no. There's They're constantly finding like weird little excuses to have their mask off. Like they'll just sit there with like, like they're allowed to have water bottles cause they can't use the water fountains. They'll just sit there with like a straw in their mouth for like extended amounts of time. And I'm like, I need you to put your mask up, take quick sips and put your mask up. And they're like, I'm drinking. I'm like, I'm going to be drinking <laughs> at the end of this day, but <laughs> like, I know take a quick sip, put your mask back up. It's really, really important for your safety. Um, and then I have other kids who are absolutely straight up, like terrified of this because yeah. like they've lost parents, they've lost grandparents. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really scary. Um, at the high school level, it's been a little better. High school kids are a little more rational. Um, but I still have a few who are just like, their masks are down around their chins all the time or under their nose. And I'm, yep. I'll i like several times the class period, I'm like, okay, time for everybody to do a mask check. Make sure your mask is covering your nose, your mouth, your chin. Um, I'll remind them, like, I have a spouse at home who has an underlying condition and like, please don't have me bring home a deadly disease to him because yeah. that would really not be great. <laughs> um, most of them are pretty good, but Still, they're getting sick. Like I think we had like 40 kids out of my Jesus. building on Monday and yep. uh, like 28 staff members or something like that were out Jesus. and we had one sub,
9: oh, God. which is the
7: other, that's the other issue is this isn't really a question of um, if we should go remote. It's a question of when will we be forced to go remote and mm-hmm. we can either do that now before everybody has gotten sick and wait for this to subside and get some better mitigation strategies in place, or we can do it after everybody is sick. And then we're going to be scrambling to figure it out and also be sick at the same time. I don't really see how that makes any sense. Yeah. And that's the part of this that I've just been like,
6: I I just like, I don't get it. Like I can just like fundamentally there's, there's just like a a mental break where it's like, I, I don't understand why like lightfoot and cps are so insistent about not going remote like i i get that like yeah it's it's hard on kids but it's like it it's it's you know it it, it is the years 2020 2021 and 2022 like no matter what you do it's it's hard on the kids and it's like
2: yeah they just
7: yeah. i also i wonder how much of it is the remote learning that's hard on them and how much of it is just the um, everything around them is crashing and falling and burning around their ears because um the messaging that they've been getting is that they don't matter. They're not important. Their safety isn't important. Their mm-hmm. families aren't important. And um, some of them like want to be remote. A lot of them, a lot of their parents want them to be remote. They're like, you know, it's not as good, but at least I feel safe. Some of yeah. them, even thrived in remote like actually did pretty well and i really wish that it was just an option for those students Mm -hmm. who actually did well with it that they could just like if we even ended up with like a third of our students choosing it it would mitigate this so much because that's a third of the people not there to spread it around um so can i ask
6: like how how big how big your class sizes are
7: um right now the building i'm in now i have like 25 to 30 In some, my, it was kind of similar at the last building. Like they're in that range, 25, 30. I have like always have like one or two that are like 20 or below that are usually um, special education, like inclusion classes where I have a co-teacher. But yeah, it's, you know, some of them are pretty crowded and it it really varies by school. Like there's Mm -hmm. definitely schools that have over 30 kids in a room. and don't have the staff. Cause it's just, that's the other thing is like, they keep talking about, you know, I keep seeing people be like fire all the teachers and I'm like, good luck. Like, (laughs) yes is chronically understaffed. What are you going to do?
6: (laughs) Yes. It's like this, like, yeah, I think again, like this job is really hard. Like it's being a teacher.
7: (laughs) Yeah, it's Yeah. (laughs) it's exhausting. And it's very, very rewarding. Like when it's good, it's great. When it's bad, it is miserable.
0: <laughs> yeah.
7: Um. So yeah, and like what it looks like, and I mean, that's you know, it depends. It really depends on what school you're in. Um. I think everybody can agree that it is difficult right now. Um. So we we have like air purifiers going and masks on, and I cannot understand what my kids are saying a lot of the time. Like I do not mm-hmm. know, and they speak so quietly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I need you to shout it say it like you mean it, whatever it is so but you know that's been challenging and frustrating and exhausting but um the worst thing ever is finding out that one of my students is sick yeah like it I hate when they're I hate it when they hurt like whenever that one of them is hurting I feel bad and knowing that they're home sick is it's it's really upsetting and just it's yeah. you know it's distressing for teachers to know that their kids are struggling in a way like that um, so that's you know we want them to be safe
6: you know like, like these kids it's like and, and this is this is true of the staff too when you're when you're getting sick it's like yeah like so, some of these people will be okay but enormous numbers of people are like some of these people are going to die some of these people a lot of these people are going to get disabled um yeah i mean the the long-term long-term effects are really bad and we you know one of if, if people remember uh we we did an episode with one of our friends who's a nurse, and like, yeah, like he he had long COVID. His long COVID was like, he he couldn't do more than like like getting out of bed or like like just walking across a room would just put him in bed all day because like it, it, there, there's you know there's there's an enormous range of sort of like, of of long COVID side effects, and yeah, it's like it's 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 like CPS is just trouble public schools. It's just in like they're they're getting people killed. Yeah. And it's,
7: and it's, you know, that's like the question, like they keep talking about percentages and I'm like, these are human beings. Every one of those numbers is a human. So when you say like only, you know, point whatever percent are going to be long-term affected, like, okay, those are people. Can we stop like dehumanizing them with these like like, data points? And um, as for like the, the issue with like, how like kids are less affected by it or whatever. Like the, the fact is like the more we allow this to spread around, the more variants we're going to see. And yep. we don't know that the next variant isn't going to be the one that is really significantly harmful to children. Yeah, And we are basically turning our schools into these Petri dishes where this thing can mutate and become yep. stronger. And now we have vaccinated people who are in that mix and it's becoming resistant to the vaccine. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a social studies teacher, not a science teacher, but this seems like a bad move to me.
6: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Like it's just sort of heartbreaking in a lot of ways. I mean, it's just like, they've just decided that, you know, and and again, like, I don't don't know why Lightfoot's doing this. Like maybe it's just like, she wants to shore up her base thing because she's trying trying to build a base among like the just like rich, weird North or something. But like,
7: (laughs) it's she's a small business person that's always been her people are the small business owners who don't want to close schools because then you know their workers won't come in and i you know i want to feel sorry for them but i don't i don't know like i'm like Like, fuck you because yeah there's also a lot of small business owners who have been very supportive of us we had uh, there was like a a taco place offering free burritos to us. So, like I really appreciate that. Like there's a yeah. lot in the community who understand that. Like the lives of our children are so much more important than you missing two weeks of profit. Yeah. Like you will figure that out. And if you want to bail out businesses, um, we can figure that out. But yeah, right now, and also like yeah. is is saying like we have we aren't we refuse to do anything that yeah. might be inconvenient for business owners <laughs> like what is that
6: yeah and it's like it's like yeah so you know and also yeah but like business owners did get bailed out like they got they got they got zero percent loans most of those loans got written off and meanwhile yeah it's like well okay what did life do with the covid money she she gave it to the cops and yeah. oh hey guess guess who's also just a rampant spreader of covid oh yeah it's the cops and it's like yeah. it- yeah, Those who like, you know, resisted
7: vaccines the most the cops. Yeah.
6: I mean actually there there, <laughs> there there is one funny thing which I'm I'm actually very excited about which is that the cops are doing they're having their first uh, so they're, they're, they have a new class graduating but uh from the police academies which is really bad and there's a whole what well, one, one of the like life what's things was that there there was a huge campaign against building more police academies because you know everyone hates the Chicago police department they're awful. Well, And if you have
7: $100 billion for a new police academy, why or 100 million or whatever it was, why can't you put some better ventilation in the schools?
6: Yeah, well, it's good. Yeah, it's It's because (laughs) because like the CPD are like basically feudal lords. They have knights, they go out, they can shoot you like they rob you. They just like any, any, any large number of like black kids on the streets. Like if you just have like 15 kids walking around, like eight quad cars will show up. And you know, there was and Lightfoot was like, no, 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 her like one of her campaign things, big campaign things, was like, no, nah, no, nah, nah, we're going to make sure we build these academies. And but the, so they're they're having their first like round. They, they've been having trouble recruiting because of COVID, oh, which is good. Yeah, and and they're they're about to have their first police academy exam, and it's going to be in person. And I am. <laughs> this is the only one of the few. Is, is this Jair Bolsonaro, where it's like I am rooting for the virus here. Like, please, God, save us from these cops. But yeah, I mean, oh, it's my God. it's. But they're it's, just going to
7: bring it home and spread it around.
6: Yeah. Yeah.
7: That's the sad know. thing.
6: It's it's just, it's grotesque. And yeah. Yeah.
7: I mean, it's been this thing where I'm like watching, like the school system is just throwing their hands up and saying, we don't care. We're done. The health system, the healthcare system is like crashing and burning yeah. all around us. Yep. Nurses are quitting. Hospitals are like, we don't have room for more patients. Like, did you have a cancer treatment scheduled? Sorry. Did you have a surgery scheduled? Sorry. I just saw somebody on Twitter saying she um, has a brain tumor and she's supposed to have a surgery for it. And she can't now because of COVID because they have no beds. There aren't any. And you're telling me that the right move right now (laughs) is to keep the schools open, which has always been in every Every pandemic that we've ever had, schools and hospitals and prisons are, like, the place where the whatever diseases spreads. And I know we've been claiming that, like, there's not been spread in schools, but we've now seen the data that there, in fact, is a huge amount, which I've been, like, screaming about this since we started, that their contact tracing models are, they're absurd. They are, like, (laughs) Kafka-esque, like... (laughs) basically um so we start from the assumption that everybody is six feet apart and wearing their mask at all times yeah which they're not it's not it's not even it's not even physically possible in a lot of classrooms for that to be happening and then two we start with the assumption that those things work and so you'll get a call from a contact tracer that's like hey um on you know like last Tuesday of Tuesday of last week, were you within six feet of any of your eighth graders for more than 15 minutes? Fuck if I know Tuesday of last week, was I near an eighth grader for 15 minutes? I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. even if like, even if I did know what difference does it make? It is an aerosolized virus. It is in the air. And the more you sit in classrooms, the more it accumulates. Like we have seen like studies about, um, this we've seen studies about how co2 accumulates in the air when there's crowds we know that stuff accumulates like that in classrooms very very quickly and you're going to tell me (laughs) that as long as I wasn't within 15 or within six feet for more than 15 continuous minutes not even like um Not even 15 minutes, like added up throughout the day, just 15 minutes continuously. I'm not going to get a virus. Are you shitting me? Like, like, that makes no sense. And so then, if, and if, and if your answer to those questions are no, because whatever, you were following the rules, then they're like, okay, you got COVID somewhere else. It wasn't at school.
6: Yeah. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It's nonsense.
7: It's like, I go to work and I go home. I don't do anything else. So I don't
6: know yeah. where else it's coming from. Like, yeah. And, like, and I also just, I want to do a brief digression about like, okay. So like, like I, I, like, I, I went to like a, like a pretty good, like like a, a pretty well, like a very well-funded, like uh, uh Chicago area sort of school. And like, okay, those place those places, ventilation sucks. Like again, like again, I, I went to a very well-funded school. Like we had a, we had drowned dead rats falling out of the ceiling. Like, wow. Like, I mean, it was it was incredibly one of my one of my my, my, my my great high school memories was my principal just like running full tilt pushing a trash can because
3: dead flood out of the ceiling. Oh my god. <laughs> That's horrible <laughs> was,
6: but My school was wild. We had oh bad. It was a we like a, a chemistry teacher let a kid set off a smoke bomb like that they'd made like in a classroom, but it didn't work, so it just like actually blew up. Like it was... <laughs> it was the time but
7: like yeah like like these hey, that's schools. project-based learning okay yeah, well,
6: yeah you, like, you gotta light the school on fire <laughs> but like like this is a this is like yeah like like these schools are not like they're not they're safe old. environments yeah the really building old. i worked
7: in at the beginning of the year was a hundred years old it was built in 1920 and there was always this like sewage smell around the bathroom yep. because the pipes were messed up it was weird like the, and they couldn't fix it
6: I think it was the was it the second or third time my building lit on fire. Like we, there was a there was a whole thing of the building that was made of asbestos, and they just had left oh, it yeah, there because it was it, like, oh, it wasn't they, they, exposed. Yeah, Yes,
7: yeah, schools still have asbestos. <laughs> yeah,
6: <now. laughs> all over. Like again, like I I, I went to like a good, well funded one of these schools. Right, <laughs> like it's I don't I I think there's there's like there's there's these two there's two things I think it, like is interesting. Like there's when you like talk to like the people who want the schools to open back up. Right. They'll, they'll, they'll start talking about like, oh, no, it's fine. Everyone wears masks. Everyone's vaccinated. Uh, everyone's six feet apart. It's like, no, no, they're not like this. This is how it works in this like imaginary play world. You've like created. In like, your head. Have
7: you ever met a child? Yeah. <laughs> like, 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 have you met your own
6: children? Like,
7: what, what? oh, and that's the best is like, well, I've been having my kids wear a mask. I'm like you have you're full of shit. OK, because I <laughs> told that kid to put their mask on like 15 times <laughs> yesterday. And I love them. Beautiful face. I hope they get to show it off someday. But right now, yeah, keep it covered (laughs) up, please. I'm begging you. And I'm like, I'm not like that teacher who's really authoritarian. Like, I've never been good at, like, writing kids up and getting on them for stuff because it's just like, I don't know. I hate doing that. I hate being that person.
8: Yeah.
7: So it's been like, really, it's like a struggle. It's like, am I going to be the person who nags them every five seconds? Or am I going to be? um the teacher that they like and want to learn from like yeah you know this isn't sustainable so but yeah. you're asking like the attitudes of people who want to open schools back up and i it, it's it's hard because i i have talked to parents who are worried but they are also very upset because they see that their kids are struggling yeah and I really do feel for them on that. Like, I really, really do. It is hard to see a kid struggle, but it is harder. I think to see a kid sick, that is really hard. And it's just this, like there are ways that we can overcome the difficulties of remote learning. Like we, we can find ways to give them the emotional support. Um, We can find better socializing outlets, but I don't know how we fix like you've, become very ill and your body isn't going to recover in the way that you thought it would. Like, I don't, yeah. I can't fix that.
6: So there's something I've, I've heard from other teachers that like that preparing remote learning stuff like is harder and takes more work than.
7: Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's it's really rough. <laughs> I but, don't like doing it. I want yeah. to be in the classroom, but
6: yeah. And I just, I just want to like, once again, yell at all of the people who are like, the teachers are lazy. And it's like, no, People like they're like, yeah, like, you, know, like you're, you are advocating to do more work because that's that's the thing that will keep the kids safe. And it's.
7: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand like the behind the scenes, how the sausage gets made of a classroom. But I think a lot of people have this idea that like we are given curriculum and plans and materials pre-made. And sometimes that's true it depends on your subject. Mine is social studies is not a subject where that happens very much, which is part of why I like it because I, I like to be creative. Mm -hmm. Um, so like my week looks like, um, there are a lot of hours after school where I am sitting down, I'm looking at the standards that I need to teach the topics that I need to teach, and I'm researching it and learning it and finding a way to teach that to kids who don't have the same, like baseline knowledge that I have. Um, and then I'm creating like an activity for them. I'm creating, um, you're, I'm finding like material, like sources and like videos and stuff that they can watch that are going to help them or things to read. I'm modifying those things for the kids who have, um, you know learning differences i'm translating some of those things into spanish for kids who don't really read very well in english yet so like that's a ton of work on its own mm-hmm. and then when we switch to remote we have to figure out how to do all of that on google classroom
0: yeah. where
7: now it has to all be typed like or yeah you know like how do i figure like how do i do a group project online how do i let them do something creative that isn't just sitting here answering questions on a worksheet. Mm-hmm. That's hard. And we've been really good at it. And I've found all kinds of really cool tools to, to do that with, but it's so much work and it's work that I'm willing to do because I care about my job. I enjoy my work. I love my students, but um, you know, and I want them to be safe, but like, you know, it yeah. is a ton of work. I'm not just sitting here eating bonbons all day or drinking cocktails.
6: Yeah. And I think there's, there's like a larger sort of like, like Americans have this, like the sexist sort of like hatred of like, or in disrespect to people who do both care work and in a lot of and creative work. Yeah, it's absolutely just, you know, both. And then simultaneously there's this sort of like, you know, the, the, there's, there's, there's a resentment to people who get to actually do something that helps people. And, you know, I think like right now we're seeing just the most toxic fusion of that, which is that like, yeah no like these like you know in, in, instead of like you know recognizing the enormous amount of work that that's going into all like that's going into into teaching like the amount of sort of like the care and love that's going into the creativity that's going into it and just like like people pe- people's willing that like you're willing to make like enormous sacrifices to try to keep these kids safe they're just like no like the teachers are lazy they don't want to work they're going on strike like and it's yeah. you know and, and and it's like they're doing this and it's like, yeah, like you you are like they're killing their own kids. And it's just
7: like it's <sighs> it's this weird fusion of like we, we occupy the space as this like combination of like feminized care labor, emotional labor, and um that sort of like like intelligentsia, like professional, mm-hmm. um, white collar intellectual kind of thing. And then also we're teaching a um, more introductory level of our subjects. So we're seen as like discount intellectuals <laughs> who are also yeah. women who do care work. Yeah. So it's, it's very frustrating. And I don't think a lot of people understand the amount of um, skill and expertise it takes to be a teacher and be effective at it. Like it's not just, I need to know social studies to the level that a 12th grader would know it. It's I need to know social studies beyond that level and know how to communicate it to a high school student. And also I need to know a lot of stuff about like child development. It's it's really, it's something. And um, I, you know, I find that to be fun and challenging, but I wish it was respected. Yeah. And, you know, and then you're talking about like people are sacrificing their own kids. I want to point out a lot, like, I think there's a, a racial component to this. Yeah. Um, the people who are in wealthier schools, and who are mostly white know that their kids are going to be fine. Like they are in schools that actually do have the resources to distance, that have air filters, that have good ventilation. Um, They're vaccinated. Their kids are probably going to be fine. The kids that aren't going to be fine are low-income students of color. And it has always been this way. It's always been this way with schools. Like when schools were desegregated, we started with private school vouchers And we started with all of these, like, uh, state testing requirements and withholding funding from schools that don't meet those, you know, test standards and all of these, like, um, this extra oversight on teachers. Like, that stuff all comes back to white people don't want to have to worry about Black people's kids. That's it. And, you know, they will move their kids out to the north side or to the suburbs or whatever. Notice that all of those suburb schools have flipped remote. Notice that Lori Lightfoot's kids are in a charter school that is now yep. remote.
6: Well, and more than that, I yeah, like, Light, Lightfoot, Lightfoot Lightfoot, won't, <laughs> Lightfoot won't eat, like, Lightfoot will not put herself in a room with, this, with the same number of people no, that, like, absolutely a teacher not. has to go to every day. She won't do it. And she it, was
7: and, telling people at the press conferences they had to wear their masks. Yeah. Even though she wasn't wearing hers, which was very strange to me. <laughs> it's like...
6: <laughs> Like and that's the thing. Like, 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 like when when you, when you get to the politician level, they know it's dangerous. Like they know it. They they they, they and you can tell but if, if you watch is what they do. Right now. Yeah, like they won't do it. But like no, no, they're they're perfectly willing to just send to send you off to die, to send all these kids off to die, and it's just. Yeah,
7: yeah sometimes I feel I get kind of doomer, and I wonder if like if that's not the plan. Like, is it that? I mean, I don't really believe that. I think what it really is, is this just like malicious neglect. Like if you're somebody who's a policymaker and someone comes to you and it's like, I need you to care about this population here that doesn't have a lot of money and needs a lot of things. And you, the policymaker, are going to be like, oh, that sounds like so much work. And then somebody else is going to come to you and be like, I need these things over here. And I do have a lot of money and I do have a lot of influence and I'm going to make your life difficult. If you don't do what I want, yep. they're going to do what that other side wants, And what that other side wants right now is for kids to get back into school so that they can have free daycare so that parents can go to work. And that's, and that's it. And yeah. teachers are standing here being like, I didn't get a master's degree and do, you know, countless hours of professional development to be a babysitter, you know? And no, not to knock babysitters. I was a nanny for a long time. That is hard work, but um, (laughs) I didn't get a master's degree to be a babysitter. I got a master's degree to be a teacher and I'm in an environment right now where I can't really teach effectively. And all I'm doing is babysitting. They want to warehouse kids. That is what we're doing with the schools. That's why they want them open. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard not to feel like they just are doing it because they hate us even though I know it's not it just I mean, it does feel that way i i,
6: I will, like I, I will say that like so uh, you're if, so if if you become elected as the mayor of chicago like your job is to break the teachers union like that's that's like that's, that's 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 like the role yeah. you're auditioning for and they have been they have been trying to do this for literally my entire lifetime they've been trying to do this like since before i was born like that's and it, yeah. it honestly, like wouldn't surprise me if this was if another part of this was just them once again trying to break the teachers union.
7: Oh, absolutely. And like, and
6: if, and not even just that, like, yeah, you know what I mean? I'm like, like not just on the sort of political level, like on the incredible cynical level of we'll just kill them. And, well,
7: it's, it's a labor yeah. thing. Like it's not just a, a Chicago teachers union or even a teachers union thing. It is a labor movement across the board thing that yeah. um, the largest, I think the largest unionized workforce in the country is teachers. Yep. And we on top of that are a union of workers who have the power to absolutely bring our economy to a grinding halt if we want to. We could yeah. all go on strike right now and nobody's going to do shit until we go back to work. Um, they could, if they, you know, they could try to like replace us with like people who are basically like hall monitors and give kids like canned curriculums, but they wouldn't really be learning very well and parents wouldn't be happy with it and they wouldn't be entering the workforce with the skills they need to make money for the economy yeah to you know make money for the almighty dow so <laughs> um the it has been a project for decades in this country to try to break teachers unions because teacher unions occupy this space where they allow other unions to happen um yeah. We have, you know, enough influence on politicians that they can't just disband the labor board and make unions illegal, which they would absolutely fucking love yeah. to do. <laughs> and if they could just get rid of these damn teachers unions, maybe yep. they could do it. Um, so, you know, and that's what you see with the education reform movement, where you have all these people advocating for vouchers and charter schools. And it's, you know, the, I, it, they want to break labor and yeah. i i see a lot of i mean now i'm going to i'm i'm going to scold some of my comrades <laughs> but i see a lot of leftists who um are really skeptical of teachers and don't want to support the teachers union and i i get it like there are a lot of teachers who really suck and there's a lot of teachers who are not radical like most teachers are not radical yeah. a lot of them are pretty conservative but at the same time if you were to abolish schools immediately right now and break up the teachers unions and all that you're going to end up with rich people go to school, poor people don't. If you're poor, your kid goes to work probably won't be in a coal mine, but you know, they'll probably be like soldering my uh, computer chips or coding or something for like pennies an hour. And I don't want that world. And if you actually care about labor, then you need to support teachers unions because um, the public schools are Central to all of these communities that we want to be reaching, and the unions are the only thing making sure that they stay public. Yeah. So
6: <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and I, I, I was like, again, like to 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 Iannikas comrades who are anti-school. It's like, yeah, like okay, I you, hate you, school.
7: You, I'm for it. De- uh, deschooling is yeah, great, but, but, like, but we yeah, need to do other things first. <laughs>
6: yeah, you have to, and like again, like the, the you 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 need to like it's like support the workers, not the institution. Mm-hmm. Like. A, it's it's like it's like saying
7: I'm a vegan, so I'm gonna go after McDonald's and place. <laughs> yeah, well, can like, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll this
6: like like so like I I, I my high school was like oh, like all the schools went to like incredibly conservative, but everyone was still in the union. That was like the one that was the one thing that was like well, okay, there 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 were two countervailing forces. One was that I. The Christians didn't seem to understand what liberation theology was, so occasionally they'd accidentally hire a leftist because they were like, "Oh, you're a Christian, you're fine, you're from, well, you're from I love America, yeah, we're not going to question you further." The second thing was that even like, everyone, everyone was in the union, and that was like that was that was literally the only those are the only two left wing like even like, gotten, vaguely things.
7: Here. I've gotten into so many teaching spaces by talking about how i like critical pedagogy and they don't understand <laughs> that Freire was a communist. Yeah. <laughs> or being like, "Oh, i'm really 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 into Chicago history. I especially love the history of like labor in Chicago because it's it's huge. People here yeah. really care about it and they don't get that like i'm an anarchist." <laughs> so yeah. <that's> my- <laughs> but, you know, and and a lot of the like um sort of like education reform language. I think it's very funny. It is 100% just lifted from radical like sociologists and anthropologists and educators who are trying to find ways to um, dismantle like authoritarian structures in schools. And so they'll come up with these like, um, you know, like restorative practices and all this stuff. And then they kind of get, they, they make their way up to the ivory tower and then get repackaged in this, it's it's like, I don't know, it's like a machine or something that like sucks up radical ideas, brings them up to the academy, repackages them to make them nice for politicians, and then spits them back out into <laughs> yeah. And it is exhausting, and yeah. I hate it. It makes me so mad. I'll never forgive people for what they did to the term restorative justice.
6: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else that you uh, like? want to make sure that people... Like, understand about what's happening in the schools right
7: now. um, I guess just the biggest thing is I want people to understand that, like it this is a question of when and under what conditions are we going to be forced into a remote learning situation. This mm-hmm. isn't like we want remote learning because we like it because it's fun. It's because it's going to happen if you like it or not. The schools are going to close if you like it or not because, the unless you're okay with just like people are going to get sick and die and or going to work sick, which I think most of us agree. That's insane. Yeah. Um, it is there are, we're going to be in a situation where we don't have enough staff to keep buildings open. So either we can try and mitigate that now and keep that from happening, or we can just throw our hands up and say, fine, let, let the schools collapse. I don't want the schools to collapse. So um, if we could just go remote for two weeks and get some good testing in and have a vaccine requirement. And personally, I would like to advocate for remote as an option for parents who want it. I don't Mm -hmm. think that's on the table right now, but um, I think more parents out there should be demanding it. And I also would like to say to parents, you have a lot of power that you don't understand. Um, The school districts listen to the parents so much more than the teachers. One parent's voice is worth like 10 teacher voices. So if you see something going on in your schools that you're not comfortable with, if you have questions, contact your principals, contact the district, talk to people, talk to the other parents that you know, organize yourselves. Um, If we had, you know, strong parent organizations on our side, we would be absolutely unstoppable. And we could have the school system that we want and that our kids deserve.
6: Yeah, and I I think I like the 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 right figured this out a long time ago that you absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, look
7: at what they're doing to the school board meetings with CRT. Yeah, we could have that for people who are actually good people who care. (laughs) Like, there's no there's no reason that all of the other parents couldn't be going and saying, "I want my kids to learn about race, and I want them to be wearing masks, and I want everybody to be vaccinated."
6: Yeah, so I I think. I think that's a good note to end on. We, you know, we can make this better. We just have to, you know, work together. And do it. Um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> do you have anything that you want to plug? Like, do you have a way to support uh, the teachers? Or-
7: um, I think I'll send you a flyer that we have. It has some information for contacting Alderman, getting COVID tests, and a petition cool. to sign. Um, if you could post that, I would really appreciate yeah. that.
6: Yeah. I would. Have, we can definitely
7: do that. Awesome. Thank right. you. Yeah, thanks
0: right. for coming on. Yeah, good talking
1: to you. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black.
0: I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles.
1: Experience the music and her story.
0: Know this. I ain't no fire skill.
1: Like never before. That's
0: my daughter. That's my Amy.
1: Big screen.
0: I want to be remembered. For just being me.
1: Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
9: All right, uh, Robert, do you want to open us up with a something? I don't know.
5: Nope. nope, you're opening. The opening is is that, is what you just did. Okay, we're, welcome. We're already opened.
9: Welcome to It Can Happen Here, the podcast about how things things do be crumbling sometimes.
5: Including our ability to introduce the podcast that pays it's our actually, salaries. It's
9: actually a very meta art piece about the, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. we started off very polished and slowly. This yeah, is a
5: commentary like, on, um, I don't know, something. It's called figure it met- out figure it's out what it's a commentary on it it's yeah.
9: called metamodernism it's mm-hmm. the po- it's post postmodern anyway um <laughs> we're going to be talking about disinformation and various bullshit uh today so among the many disinformation vectors online, Joe rogan's podcast is obviously one of like the largest yeah. single sing- single vectors. <sighs>
5: Um, yeah, I mean, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I don't think there's a cable news station as influential as Joe Rogan. You no. know, and you could you could make commentary on like, oh, maybe they have a larger viewership, but in terms of like their actual ability to influence uh, large yeah. numbers of people, um, there's certainly no single cable news host that comes close to Joe. Um, and I would yeah. argue, probably no network that does. He's extremely influential by virtue of the fact that he's. Um, uh, a, a meathead. People seem to find friendly and engaging, and he is very charismatic. He's good at what he does.
9: He's good uh, at but... talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, multiple times during the past three weeks, uh, Rogan has brought on two separate uh, "quote unquote" doctors, whom have uh, started to peddle something called mass formation psychosis, which is kind of a new vector in the anti-vax kind of argument and like headspace. So, for like, as for like the. Uh, it-could-happen-here portion of the episode. This one's pretty simple. Uh, could Mass Formation Psychosis happen here? No
1: way. Not this time. We created it. Not this time. No. Not this time. It's totally made up. Pure fiction. It's fiction. It's fiction. We made it up. We made this one up. It's a made-up tale.
2: It's a total fabrication.
5: Nope.
9: Not
1: nope. really.
5: It's, it's fiction. <laughs> Has it ever happened anywhere? Total. I might also argue no. Nope. Fiction. We've done total. it. We've solved the podcast. Total fabrication. <laughs> This is
9: not a thing. <laughs> Total fabrication. Made up um, tale. So, yeah. Well, but when, whenever these like kook doctors bring up mass formation psychosis, you can actually kind of watch them get close to understanding something real. But then yeah. they veer off into reactionary nonsense.
5: L- like most powerful nonsense, there is an element of truth that it is uh, spinning off of, you know?
9: Yeah. So well, let's start off with some of the more kind of deranged examples, and well, then eventually providing at least some background onto the whole mass formation psychosis idea, and then we'll kind of discuss some of the more slightly <clears throat> interesting aspects of this argument that Rogan seems fond of pushing right now. So the first guy I want to talk about is Dr. Uh, Peter McColl which is not the not the guy that was trending on Twitter last week or whatever. This was this is someone else that Rogan brought on a few weeks previously who actually started talking about this first. Yeah. Um so background on McCull, by most accounts he was like a, a top cardiologist for many years. I oh, know he, he shares a similar story to other doctors who've become kind of COVID conspiracy celebrities. Former yeah. fr- friends and co-workers say he was a pretty reasonable guy and a good doctor. And then COVID and then he hit. He
5: realized he could be worth millions of dollars.
9: <laughs> yeah, COVID yeah. hit, then he started to kind of go off the rails. And he uh, he initially began developing conspiracy theories, in particular around hydroxychloroquine. Um, and McCullough was also in the news earlier this year, due to a, or I guess in 2021, uh. Due to a legal dispute with his former employer, Baylor University Health. So, uh, according to a lawsuit, for nearly six months after McCull's uh, employment had ended, he continued to use his professional titles, such as the vice chief of internal medicine at Baylor University, and misrepresented himself as a Baylor employee dozens, if not hundreds, of times in media interviews in which he spread disinformation about the pandemic. So, the the type of misinformation that he talks about, you know, pretty basic stuff. Uh, vaccines are neither safe nor effective. Um, he was a very early hydroxychloroquine uh, proponent. Um, he claims that there's no as- asymptomatic COVID transmission at all, even if you're not vaccinated. Um, and he claims that you cannot get COVID twice. Once you have it once, the post-infection natural immunity is 100% protective against all future COVID disease which of course which is not, nothing all of those, nothing works that way all like, of the no, things no we just said,
6: works that way yeah
9: no everything yeah. i just said is not true um,
6: all, all, all of it can individually be disproved by the existence of jair bolsonaro <laughs> <laughs> he, he defeats every single one of these claims
5: uh, you sur- uh, you as you say can. that chris i'm looking over at my digital picture frame that is just loaded with like a dozen photos of jair bolsonaro in the hospital dying um
9: <laughs> yeah I recommend
5: everyone (laughs) do that. It improves every morning. As soon as I walk up to my recording studio, I see Jair Bolsonaro getting shit sucked out of his nose from a tube. And I just feel ready to take on the day. It beats coffee.
9: Wow. That's Mm -hmm. strong words. Um, Mm -hmm. The the other big thing. And this is how how I want to get into the mess. Psychosis bullshit is that he he, McCall also asserts that 50,000 Americans have died from the vaccine shots. This is not true. Um, Mm -hmm. Looking at like deaths possibly associated with it, it is like a maybe a thousand or two thousand, which sucks. Um yeah. And but like that's that's the highest amount because again, it's not even a lot of these things are not necessarily direct directly causal. Um. So it's hard to figure out what is what. But if there is a number, it's around the two ish thousand range. Uh, not fifty thousand. Um. And McCull thinks that, or at least promotes. The idea that like the vaccine is a conspiracy theory to suppress hydroxychloroquine and therapeutic treatment for COVID, and this conspiracy is organized at every level, uh, through different regions, corporations, big pharma, uh, Hollywood, and and this is this is the mass formation psychosis. Is that we've believed that both COVID is like a, a big problem and that the vaccine is the solution. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play a clip. Hopefully you guys can hear this of 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 mccall uh, talking about mass formation psychosis dope we've seen mass psychosis in history before
10: the uh, horrific uh, group suicides that have happened with religious cults we knew in nazi germany where people in a sense offered their children up to eugenics <clears throat> programs in a progressive mass psychosis and they themselves walked into gas chambers and went gas yeah, they didn't kick fight go kicking and screaming this type of that's a mass psychosis. So what um, Desmond says is there must be four conditions met for a mass psychosis. The first is the population must be isolated. People must be isolated for a long period of time. Number two, we must have things taken away from us that we previously enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Number three, there must be constant free-floating anxiety, anxiety of more viruses, more disability, more death, more anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is the capper. Number four is there must be a single solution offered by an entity in authority. The vaccine. Mm -hmm. The only solution to the pandemic is the vaccine. We're in a mass psychosis. And what Desmond says is with the vaccine, there is no limit to the absurdity that we will see no limit to the mm-hmm. absurdity. Mm-hmm. So this idea of here, take a vaccine, take any vaccine—that's absurd. The vaccines are different. There must be a winner. There must be a loser. There must be somebody. Yeah, know. Why, why would it fair. be any vaccine? It's the same with the mask. Wear a mask. Doesn't matter what kind of mask. Just put it over your face. The absurdity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the absurdity of mm-hmm. uh, well, I've already had COVID. The CDC says you can't
5: get COVID again. all All right. Nope. Okay. So, they, listeners yeah. at home should know so that you understand what this video is that the entire time he's talking, there is what appears to be the eviscerated corpse of a black woman lying underneath yeah. him. Like, it's horrifying. Yeah, it's like, what it's is very unsettling. Me? It's just like, like,
6: like meat. On top of, is this
9: yeah, I, th- what, I think it's like. You- th-
5: one of the dolls that medical students learn yeah. how to do autopsies on. It's not a real person, but it does look like the corpse of an eviscerated Awful. woman as he's uh, just like, like
0: but, chatting. But the face really does look like a yeah. person.
6: It took me a flick. I, I, I thought it was like, I couldn't figure out what was going on for like, yeah, ages. I mean, like, yeah, it the, looks they're like a real person.
5: The the cadaver dolls that they have for trading are quite good. Um, a- I kind of want to get one for the next time I'm in Texas and want to use an HOV lane, but that's the story for another day.
9: <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's pretty dumb especially the notion that people were hypnotized into peacefully walking into gas they chambers
5: weren't. i i just yeah. need to state like that's that n- not not only is that like th- that is objectively untrue to the extent that i could provide anyone interested with thousands of pages of reading from people who survived concentration camps about how they worked and why people Walked into them. And a lot of it just boils down to the fact that it was, they were making a very rational choice, which was, I have no options here. I cannot get out of this, but I can at least make sure that my children are not panicking in the last seconds before we're killed. And a lot of the people, the, um, the the because a lot of the actual like grunt work of of key, of loading humans into the gas chambers was done by other inmates who were also not going through psychosis, They were given a chance to survive longer by helping to operate the camps. Um, and those people, you can read some of them did survive, um, and some of them wrote about their experiences, um, which is some of the most harrowing shit like imaginable for a human being to possibly go through. It is all tremendously well-documented, and the most offensive thing I can imagine is saying that these people were somehow is, – is, is, is saying – number one, it's incredibly offensive to say that they were going through some sort of psychosis, and that's why they walked into the chambers, and not this was the best option available to them given what was going on and what, like, the situation they had been forced into. They did not have other options. Um, it was that or get machine gunned to death. Um, yeah. And maybe you think you would choose a different option – um, but if you're critiquing them or trying to claim that like the only reason they would do that, what they did was that they had lost their minds. Um, I will I will hit you in the face with a brick. Fuck you. Like that that that's my answer to that. Actually, if you are someone who is interested academically in why people did some of the things that they did uh, at at the death camps, um, and like why how that actually functioned psychologically, it's like a a, a short book. It's This Way for the Gas ladies and gentlemen and it is a, a quasi fictionalized book by a guy named Tadeusz Borowski who was a survivor of the death camp so it's based on his experiences at Auschwitz and Dachau um and he he describes the way in which the world of the camps worked and the psychology of the camps worked um and he's not an he's not a piece of shit grifter asshole he's a guy who lived through all of this so if you actually care about any of this just read that everything this guy says is wrong, and if I had a chance to, I would hit him in the face with a brick. Please continue, Garrison.
9: Yeah, it really sucks, because it's not just a combination of medical misinformation, but also just the most shit sociology. Um, and it creates this a really... a really disgusting package of, of, of really bad sociology, medical misinformation, um, and, like, yeah, he's doing this to, like because he can make a profit off of it so he's yeah. saying these things so i i, I know um he mentioned uh, a, a name uh, desmond desmond's the guy who kind of coined this term we'll, th- we'll talk about more about him at the end uh but for now uh let's go on an ad break and we'll be back to talk about uh dr robert malone the other other guy who's been pushing this nonsense so yeah. here's someone else here's ads. i
5: probably will want to hit with a brick
9: even more so honestly mm, yeah good And we're back talking now about mass formation psychosis and the dumb people who are well, or smart people who are using. Yeah, I don't think they're dumb. I think they're evil. Yeah, they're they're evil. Not tough. Um, (laughs) So yeah, so after after uh, McCall went on Rogan's show, it got that that show got pretty popular. Um, one one big right wing kind of trumpist media personality named Melissa Tate was permanently banned from Twitter after posting about the podcast and making the following post to her half a million followers. Global bombshell! Dr. Peter McCall on The Joe Rogan Show says Moderna made the COVID vaccine long before COVID actually hit and that the pandemic was a premeditated and concerted scheme by government and medical entities to then force vaccinations as the solution. So that's Mm -hmm. the type of narrative that they're trying to foster yeah because with this, with this <laughs> the pandemic psychosis. has
5: been so good for biden's approval ratings it's really uh-huh. working out great for everybody <laughs>
9: uh u.s u.s senator ron johnson also promoted the interview saying rogan asks excellent questions and mccall provides the answers so yeah not. um so apparently the mass formation psychosis doctor guy was enough of a hit that Rogan's team decided to very soon after uh, bring on another lying conspiracy doctor, uh, Dr. Robert Malone. So... Mm. During the last week of 2021, R- Rogan invited Malone onto his show. Malone's a, 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 a virologist and an immunization doctor who claims credit for inventing the uh, mRNA vaccine in a pair of papers from the late 80s. Spoilers, oh, just,
5: he did not. There was work on match. the vaccine before him and work continued after him. Yeah.
9: Yeah. Um, yeah, in 89, he published a paper... Um, kind of positing maybe MRNA can be binded uh, mm-hmm. with uh, with other kind of uh, 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 proteins. He did not really do any work on it besides nope. just saying, I wonder if this could maybe happen. It, um, and then he decided... The knowledge fight decided, guys dig
5: into this dude a bit. But okay. There were people asking similar questions and publishing papers. At the same time. similar and, Well, and before in like and 78. And yeah. 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 yeah.
9: So M- Malone actually thought this was too hard and abandoned this project very soon and then went to work for like the military to develop other random like uh he he thought the rna vaccines were too hard so he went on to develop uh more stuff around dna vaccines and has been working with like the military and various like uh big pharma companies on vaccines for a while more accurately uh dr carico and drew wiseman are are two doctors that are widely agreed and acknowledged to have put the most development work and actual like like, actually doing the science to make mRNA vaccines a thing. Um, and, the, of course, the development of them was due to, you know, work of hundreds of researchers. Um, so it's it's not, you know, one person does not invent something like this. No. It's, it's a group of a lot of people.
5: But but he, it makes it e- for an easy title for your viral video.
9: Yes. And, in fact, actually, um, uh, uh, logically, the that's uh, a journalist website, uh, reached out to Malone and uh, for an article, and Malone re- replied back, stating that he did not actually, literally invent the uh, the the vaccine, but instead developed a vaccine technology platform. Um, he, then he presented uh, logically copies with nine patents, um, none of which are the patents for uh, functioning mRNA vaccines. <laughs> of course not, because um, <laughs> he didn't but, do it. <laughs> but he he claims to have patented mRNA technology. I mean, he did. It's technology that doesn't work, uh, and never yeah. has, and, and never has worked, and the patents are expired. Um, anyway,
5: I need to patent <laughs> some shit. That just sounds like a real easy way to make a good grift.
9: Yeah. So you know, <laughs> as we've seen with my. Oh. With <laughs> <laughs> But because because Malone has crafted this, you know, narrative that I'm the inventor of this thing, you know, like just like we've seen with my, like, COVID grifting doctors episode of Behind the Bastards, just a little shred of, like, medical authority can be morphed and transformed with propaganda into something much greater than what it is, you know, whether that be claiming to be the inventor of the mRNA or, you know, claiming to be the former head scientist at Pfizer— Neither of those Mm -hmm. have to actually be true to work because propaganda (laughs) makes it true via like repetition. So, yeah, it's it's the
5: kind of thing we're like dunking on these guys. Like it's important here to correct the record. It doesn't do anything. No, the fact that they're lying and nothing that they say is true does not matter when it comes to them having an influence in the community they have. If you get on Rogan, it doesn't like like you've already done the thing that you need to do to be able to, to to profit from this. It doesn't matter that you're lying.
9: A, f- a few months ago, Malone went on to Steve Bannon's show to talk about how the vaccines make COVID Great. worse, Worse, actually. And, you know, Great. this is this is the quote from Steve Bannon. You're hearing it from the individual who invented the mRNA vaccine Great. and has dedicated his life to vaccines. He's the opposite of an anti-vaxxer, right? Great. So it's, it's, it's that type Nailing of narrative it. that you know, <sighs> gets Perfect. made. So, Perfect. yeah, Star- starting around June of 2021, Malone began to make the rounds. You know, uh, Bannon, Tucker, Glenn Beck um and now Joe Rogan so you know starting in June he had like less than 5000 twitter followers uh and just before his suspension at the end of December for spreading misinformation he had like uh, over half a million um so yeah so uh, r- right after his twitter suspension for lying about covid and causing you know misinformation to run, to to run rampant around a health issue um, that's when Rogan inv- invited him on. It was right after he got suspended from Twitter, and there's been one particular clip from the interview that has really caught like the far right's attention. Um, you know, the the tweet that's it's it's uh, connected to is captioned on Joe Rogan. Doctor Robert Malone suggests we are living through a mass formation psychosis. He explains how and why this could happen and its effects. He draws analogy to the 1920s and 30s Germany. They had a highly educated population and they went barking mad. Um, They did not. They made a
5: series of logical... The Nazis did not go mad. They were not crazy. They were not out of their mind. They were doing... They were a, a large part of what they were doing was saying things that they knew were were nonsense and lies in order to get elected because it riled people up. And then a large chunk of their policy was figuring out, well, if this is the shit that we've been saying, how do we, uh, how do we translate that into policy? Again, reams have been written on this by credible uh, uh, researchers. The people who m- ran the camps were not insane, although they were often deeply depressed and suicidal because it's not good to run a death camp. They were all making rational decisions and the people who let it happen were letting it happen because it was dangerous and scary to interfere in any way they they were all which, making rational decisions there was no insanity responsible for the holocaust
6: which is worse like yeah. and, and th- much and that's worse yeah 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 what they're like they're, they're what they're doing is like they're 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 trying to give people a way out right like you mm-hmm. know this is this is sort of like Oh, it's like, well, the Nazis went insane. All the people who followed them went insane. It's like, no, no, they don't, you don't get that way out. Like, you, they, they chose to do this.
5: Yeah, the, the scariest and most meaningful lesson to take from the Holocaust is that you yourself could be a part of a Holocaust even if you didn't support the killing because it's extremely easy to not get involved and stop something like that once it reaches a certain level. And it's easy for the kind of political organizations that can make things like that possible to reach a point where they can carry that sort of shit out because, again, it's scary to fucking fight them. Uh,
9: Let's – what, it, the, the clip's like a minute long, and I think it's worth watching to see both in the context of when Rogan decides to interject and when he decides not
2: to. Basically, European intellectual inquiry into what the heck happened oh, in I Germany. I hate this guy already. In the 20s and 30s. You know, very intelligent, highly educated population, and they went barking mad. Um, and how did that happen? Um, the answer is mass formation psychosis. When you have a society that has become decoupled from each other and has free-floating anxiety in a sense that things don't make sense. We can't understand it. And then their attention gets focused by a leader or a series of events on one small point, just like hypnosis. They literally become hypnotized and can be led anywhere. And one of the th- aspects of that phenomena is the people that they identify as their leaders, the ones typically that come in and say, you have this pain and I can solve it for you. I and I alone. Okay. Can fix this problem for you. Okay, then they will lead. They will follow that person through. He- it doesn't matter whether they lie to him or whatever. The data are irrelevant. And furthermore, anybody who questions that narrative is to be immediately attacked. They are the other. <clears throat> this is central to mass formation psychosis, and this is what has happened. We had all those conditions. If you remember back before 2019, everybody was complaining the world doesn't make sense blah, blah, blah. Um, and we're all isolated from each other. We're all on our little tools. We're not connected socially anymore, except through social media. Um, and then this thing happened and everybody focused on it. That is how mass formation psychosis happens. And that is what's happened here. Horrible. What again? A- c- completely wrong um yeah. in every single way yeah.
5: um the they the germans were not confused because nothing made sense they were angry because of the terms of the treaty of versailles they were also angry because of what they saw as and what like because of a myth that had grown up about why they had lost the first world war which was spread by people who were the equivalent in that time of joe rogan they were scared of the left of communism of disorder of riots in the streets um and one, when hitler took power most germans did not like him they did not blindly follow him he gradually gained the vast the support of the vast majority of germany through a number of different very logical things one thing that he did that got him a lot of support was he took businesses and homes and money from Jewish people and from members of other groups that the Nazis were targeting and he gave it to Aryans. There was a direct financial interest for a lot of people who got in line behind the Nazis and he established a series of programs like the Strength Through Joy program that really did benefit in a way that they had not known before the German working class. Um, And a lot of this was again subsidized through the appropriations of things that had been owned by people that the Nazis were targeting. People fell in line behind Hitler for logical reasons. He didn't not reach the highest point of his support from the German populace until the taking of Paris, which obviously that was something that a lot of Germans supported. They had spent four years failing to take the city in World War I. Um Anyway, sorry. Yeah, like, it's just, it's reason, all nonsense. It's all lies.
9: I, I think a reason why this is l- latching on so much to people on the right like people on the right who who don't consider themselves fascists who who think mm-hmm. who, who would say nazis are bad right they they still are latching on to this because it provides a way for them to not understand how fascism actually works mm-hmm. right it it, it it provides an alternative explanation that makes them not have to actually think about what fascism is um and that's why they're latching on to it and it also is already it's already a part of the conspiracies they have around vaccines and power structures. So because because it's the conspiratorial basis instead of, like, thinking about power structures from, like, an anarchist or, like, like hierarchy lens, it, it, it reinforces the worldviews they have and makes them not have to interrogate the ones that they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, it sucks. Uh, Malone's substack goes into more of this and it's 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 pretty bad there's a there's a few quotes that i think really kind of tied this together and then he has some horrible statistics um he says as many of you know i've spent time researching and speaking about mass psychosis theory most of what i've learned has come from dr desmond dr desmond is like the guy who coined this term um and uh malone writes uh Desmond realized that this form of mass hypnosis, the madness of crowds, can account for the strange phenomenon of about 20 to 30 percent of the population in the Western world becoming entrenched with the noble lies and dominant narrative concerning the safety and effectiveness of the genetic vaccines, Mm. and both propagated and enforced by politicians, science bureaucrats, pharmaceutical companies, and legacy media. Of course, the obvious examples of mass formation is Germany in the 30s and 40s. How could the German people, who are highly educated, very liberal in the classic sense, Western-thinking people, how could they go crazy and do what they did to the Jews? How could this happen? To a civilized people, a leader of a mass formation movement will use the platform to continue to pump the group of new information to focus on. In the case of COVID-19, I like to use the term fear porn. Leaders through mainstream media and government channels continuously feed the beast with more messaging that further hypnotize their adherents. Studies suggest that mass formation follows a general distribution. 30% of people are brainwashed and hypnotized, fully indoctrinated in the group narrative. 40% in the middle are uh, persuaded and may follow if no were the alternatives perceived. And 30% will fight the narrative. Those who rebel and fight against the narrative become the enemy of the brainwashed and the primary target of aggression. So that's the way he Mm. thinks. That is how, which is really, it's really something like in terms of how he's building a narrative in his head and specifically building a narrative for other people's heads to to view why do i feel distrustful of certain pieces of power but to love other pieces of power
5: yeah and it's again, like this idea that like, well, Germany was liberal. Like there, Germany had an enormous right-wing movement. Like it was a hugely conservative country in a lot of ways. It would also had a lot of leftist organizing and a lot of leftists in it, especially after World War I. But like the Freikorps and shit, there were these massive, million-strong right-wing armed street movements that existed for the entirety of the Weimar Republic. Like it's, again, everything he says is wrong.
9: Yeah, and again, it's like, the notion that like thirty percent are fully brainwashed, forty percent are in the middle and persuadable, and thirty percent fight the narrative. It's like these these people who are obsessed these like these specifically conservatives who are obsessed about thinking well like I would have fought the Nazis and because they don't understand how fascism works and power dynamics, they don't understand how how they're actually getting pulled into the same thing, but they still view themselves as the rebel. Right, mm-hmm. they are they, so. Everybody focused. wants
5: to be the rebel in America. Right? Yeah, well, like, they're, they're so yeah, that focused was a Nazi on being too. Yeah,
9: yeah, absolutely. So like they're so focused on being the rebel, and like we're rebelling against the vaccine. That that is just like rebelling against the Nazis.
6: And you're like, what? <laughs> um, also, also, I just want to say about those numbers. If 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 when, they're when too completely start, made up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when people start throwing even number of statistics out like that it's because they're lying yeah, yeah it's because no, like they're full of shit yeah yeah
9: 30 40 30 absolutely not You're no, not that's
6: yeah that's
5: <laughs> that's complete nonsense for one yeah it's Poor
9: so i get so uh, because now the other thing that happened around this interview because it it did gain a lot, a lot of traction among the right is that whenever these things gain traction they also develop conspiracy theories that people are trying to suppress it they're like look at the google algorithm when you Type in certain keywords like i i know the 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 day this was trending it was like if you google Dr. Malone the interview is only like the sixth result the first one is this YouTube video debunking it and like I did this and like no the first result was the obviously viral video of him mm-hmm. saying the thing like they just they can take one screenshot that maybe someone made or maybe because of one person's computer algorithm that's what gave them and use this as like evidence that this is the entire system of the internet suppressing the thing and like no the internet wants things to go viral now there's certain things where they like try to shut down the spread of d- of dangerous stuff but this got very viral this was not mm-hmm. contained in any way but because of this notion like they're trying to hide it you know it plays into their them thinking they're like they're them thinking that they are the rebels or something no and,
5: and there's also a very practical reason why the people who particularly know that they're lying do this and it's because All of their success is based on a foundation of the way in which YouTube and Facebook and Twitter algorithmically amplified them and their predecessors. And they know that creating controversy over the fact that they're being suppressed um, leads to more content that gins that basically algorithmically spreads their stuff more, because more yeah. people are talking about it, because other people's channels start debating it, because idiots on the left are like, well, we should at least have them on and platform them, because we're anti-censorship too, so let's debate them, and like, all of this stupid shit feeds into spreading their stuff. It's a very intelligent strategy. Um, I hate it.
9: But just in, just in terms of how ridiculous it is, I know a few days ago a congressman, Troy Nell's uh said that I submitted the transcript from the Joe Rogan Experience podcast episode with Dr. Malone to the Congressional Record. Big Tech wants to restrict your access your access to information, but they cannot censor the congressional record. Nonsense big tech
5: is the entire what? reason why you know about these people.
9: Yep. Yeah. 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 Entirely. So if it were I, not
5: for big tech, Joe Rogan would be narrating videos of robots fighting.
9: So like, j- Jack Sobieck got real into this because he loves anything that goes viral. If of it course. weren't
5: for big tech, Jack Posobiec would have died in a ditch of an oxycontin overdose.
9: So he he, he got real into it. He changed his like. He changed his Twitter name to Jack Mass Formation Psychosis Psych- or some bullshit like that. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, some stu- um, yeah, uh huh.
9: Stupid, and it was it was tweeting about it nonstop for a week. And like like a kid learning about a new topic because of synchronicity, he's he's gonna like project it onto everything he sees now. He's like mm-hmm. this this new all encompassing topic that makes you avoid what fascism actually is, and then point out at the things you don't like. So of course he's he's gonna apply it to everything. He he made a tweet. Right before January sixth, um, as the anniversary of the Capitol uh, attempted uh, coup thing, uh, regime media has launched a propaganda push against Ashley Babbitt today to psychologically prep their flock for the upcoming mass formation event planned for January sixth this week. This, this is called priming, and it's a textbook mass formation theory tactic. Wait till you see what comes next.
5: And, and uh, like, it, it is the 6th today. Has anything happened? You know happened? what happened? Not they, a goddamn thing.
9: They got fucking Lynn manuel Miranda to sing a yeah.
5: song. That's <laughs> the what Democrats they did. The Democrats got Lynn manuel Miranda wait, to wait, sing wait, a
0: song. Wait, Did you
8: see that that wasn't, he, he He might have said something in the beginning that was new, but the performance has
7: been played before on other things.
5: Well, and I I am, you know what, if we're talk, trying to reach across the aisle, I am willing to, to, to admit that the popularity of Lin-Manuel Miranda might be a mass formation psychosis.
9: Absolutely, yes. The popularity of Hamilton is a mass formation psychosis.
5: Absolutely. <laughs> we're, ju- we're just being assholes. But like, like the, s- seriously, like it again, centrist, it, but it doesn't- it do- What
8: the fuck is what we're when saying? It,
5: <laughs> when it comes to, again, like the fact that he said there's gonna be this- whatever uh, uh psych mass formation psychosis event on the anniversary of january 6th then it's going to be huge watch for it and nothing happens doesn't matter never matters yeah. will never matter um because uh, again like it's it's i think one of the issues that we have here is the degree to which brain brainwashing and hypnosis and stuff are talked about within kind of discussions of occultic milieu when they're not really a factor not a factor yeah. in cults not a not, factor not in-
9: nearly as much as you think
5: yeah no. And not in the way that you think. There's things that, yeah. like, you could call brainwashing, but the the the, and you could even maybe call hypnosis. Although that's a lot murkier, and that um, is a, that is a very her, technical yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. But but the what, what actually like the the stuff that's actually happening is again, it's always much more logical and rational if you can just inhabit the mental space of the people who are. In those communities because of what they're primed to believe first and because of what is happening socially because of the degree to which they isolate themselves from people who are outside of that bubble like that's why you it's so hard to get them out. It's not that like magically their brains have been taken over. It's that they have pretty methodically been put into a position where rejecting what is being told to them within this context is immensely more painful um, than just continuing to believe things that are not true, um, and there are more consequences for it. You know, um, you lose a support network, you lose a great deal of of, of your own opinion of yourself and your self worth if you start to reject this stuff. Um, and once you can trap people in that, it's the same way that like Scientology works. Once you can trap people in that. Um, it, th- the evidence of their eyes and the fact that like they're obviously being lied to and the things that they're being told about don't come to pass. It's this, it's the reason why you have a bunch of apocalyptic cults who say the days the world's going to end on this day and time, that day and time comes, the world doesn't end and the cult goes on, you know?
9: Yeah. yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty ridiculous. This, this whole thing was started by this, uh, professor of clinical psychology, at, uh, at a university in Belgium, uh, Matthias Desmet. He seems to have a pretty bad understanding of history and actual like power oh, wow. structures and does not know the least bit about fascism um, and has tried to craft this thing to fill in the gaps in his own knowledge and applies it to everything. And I've read some of his stuff. It's it's nonsense. Um, it, Again, it, the, the, just like the doctors who talked about it, they're like, yeah, he's using this also as a way to explain how COVID's not real, and how the vaccine is a is a ploy to do x bad thing. It's it's all ridiculous. It's irresponsible, um, and they're using it as a tactic. And hopefully, it's just going to blow over. But I'm sure it'll pop up every every once in a while again, just like it popped up, you know, a few weeks ago.
5: Mm-hmm. But
9: that's that, that's really all I all I want to get into it. I I, I could yeah. say more, but I think we have said enough.
5: I think we've said <laughs> enough. Um. All right. Well. Fuck it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I've got. Um. Read this way for the gas, ladies and gentlemen, by Thaddeus uh, Borowski. Um. It will. It, it it will have a major impact on the way you see the entire world if you if you actually read it. Um. There's some incredible pieces in there. One of one of the things that that Thaddeus points out is that like people only ever have like one kind of language for for talking about like the things that they feel, whether Re- it's something they they kind of vaguely care about or something they care about enough to murder over. And so when people engage in acts of like horrific violence on a mass scale, they often do it looking and acting like they would if they were irritated at somebody in traffic. Um, and it's the most unsettling thing about being the victim of a genocide that you don't see the kind of hate and the kind of rage and the kind of like what you would expect someone would need to be amped up to it's more of like you see more like kind of boredom and, and irritation and all that stuff like it's not anyway read 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 Thaddeus Borowski um, <laughs> he's I desperately wish Joe Rogan would just uh, sit and narrate this book on his show because it would do actually a service to the world anyway um that's that's the episode
1: focus features presents back to black
0: i want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles
1: experience the music and her story
0: know this i ain't no spy girl
1: like never before
0: that's my daughter that's
2: my amy
1: screen
0: i want to be remembered for just being me
1: amy winehouse back to black directed by sam taylor johnson rated r under 17 not a minute without parent only in theaters may 17th
5: Could it happen here? It maybe. I, Robert Evans, host of this podcast, um, to introduce this today's episode, which is not my episode. It's it's Andrew's uh, episode. So, hello, hello. how how are you doing, Andrew? How, how do you I'm feel good. about that introduction?
11: I'm good. I think it's um. Could use some work, but you know, workshop yeah. it. <laughs> yeah,
5: we we never workshop anything. We just we just roll right ahead. Um, yeah, so abolish without, work and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Abolish introductions. You know, start <laughs> in the middle. What, why don't we just do that now?
9: In media res podcast.
5: Yeah, we'll make every podcast like Finnegan's Wake, where the opening of the podcast is like halfway through a paragraph. That the end of the paragraphs or the end of the episode, starts. Every everything will be a circle. Let's just, Sophie.
11: I think that's the new plan. Okay. Okay. Andrew, what do you got for us today? Right. So today I want to talk about bioregions and bioregionalism. It's a philosophy slash movement slash way of viewing things. It's, It's a lot. So today we'll be exploring what it is, where it came from, and the role I see it playing in our strides towards anarchy. But first, of course, we should really get some context bioregionalism, have any of you heard of it, by the way? I, mean, I have heard the term I've heard of in bioregions. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. So it's actually a pretty recent, um, all things considered. Um, it was coined as a term by a guy named Alan Van Newkirk, founder of the Institute for Bioregional Research in 1975. And as a movement, it really gained a lot of popularity in the late 1970s, In the Ozarks, Appalachia, Hudson River, and San Francisco Bay Area regions. Um, They had a conference in a prairie, interestingly enough, near Kansas City in 1984. And they've also had conferences in the Squamish bioregion of British Columbia, as well as the Gulf of Maine bioregion on the Atlantic. And of course, with all these different people coming together, sharing all their different ideas, talking about cool nature stuff they developed a sort of a platform which they outline in papers on subjects ranging from agriculture to forestry to arts to economics to community so while it was a very north american focused um movement and philosophy at first it has also expanded to europe and australia and these groups there are hundreds of them all over Um, They get involved with local ecological work like preservation and restoration, plumiculture, all that. And they also form networks, so they would link on specific issues like water conservation or organic farming or tree planting. And, of course, bioregional groups also get involved in attempts to make communities more self-sufficient by mapping and utilizing local assets. And, well, as you'll come to see, um, bioregionalism and maps kind of go hand-in-hand in in a way, um, because it really is about that sort of big picture looking at the earth and the environment and our place in it. So what is bioregionalism exactly? In essence, it's a philosophy based around the organization of political, cultural, and economic systems around naturally defined areas called bioregions. So what are bioregions? They are areas defined through physical and environmental features, including watershed boundaries, soil and terrain characteristics, flora, fauna, and climate. Bioregionalism also stresses the determination of a bioregion is a cultural phenomenon and emphasizes local populations, local knowledge, and local solutions. Because humans are actually, surprisingly, part of nature. Our cultures, our settlements, they arise from nature. They arise from the characteristics of the bioregions that we inhabit. So, I mean, that to me is a clear bridge between bioregionalism and landback, And it also points to me um, the fact that while bioregionalism may be a fairly recent philosophy slash movement, its roots and the ideas it presents are nothing new. You know, um, I mean, bioregionalism posits that... You know, human societies must learn to honour our bioregions and the connections between them if we are to be ecologically sound. And this perspective is really old news you know, for the indigenous peoples who have maintained these lands and um, been stewards of these lands for thousands of years. I think that thinking in a bioregional scale allows us to establish regenerative and circular economies, effectively restore local ecosystems, restructure our systems using ecological design principles and, of course, deepen our cultural connections to the land we inhabit. So that, to me, really stresses the importance of bioregionalism in our approach to environmental issues. Um, before I continue, I just wanted to say that for those who want to like visualize, because I know this is a podcast, You can only hear my voice. Um, One Earth has a pretty decent map of bioregions on their website, so you could just Google bioregions 2020 and it should come up. They basically have like 185 bioregions on their map. And well, according to that map, Trinidad is part of bioregion NT21E, NT standing for Neotropic and E standing for East. And Trinidad is grouped with, Um, South America, and particularly the uh, Venezuela, Guyana's region, um, for obvious reasons, being that the Orinoco and other rivers that come from the Amazon flow out to, you know, Trinidad's shores, really. So, clunky segue, um, there are a couple different concepts that... One might want to keep in mind when approaching or attempting to curate a bioregional understanding of the world. Of course, perspective and a bioregional perspective is important and it's basically one that seeks to ensure that political boundaries match ecological boundaries. Highlighting the unique ecology of the bioregion, encouraging the consumption of local foods where possible, encouraging the use of local materials where possible and encouraging the cultivation of native plants in the region. I will point out like from now that from what I've read about bioregionalism and the talks that I've seen, there are definitely some, you know, liberal sensibilities, some capitalist realism um, in the way that some bioregionalists talk about, you know, things like organizing our politics and our states and stuff around bioregions um obviously you know they are pushing things pretty far because they do talk about you know going and really orienting our economy around you know bioregions and thinking in terms of that but then at the same time they're still like almost passive acceptance in some of the readings that I've seen of capitalism. You know, I think that's pretty common in a lot of what I like to call almost radical um, ideas and philosophies and stuff. Of course, when I approach these ideas and these philosophies and stuff, I always try to, you know, keep that anarchist analytical framework in my head, understanding that, you know, these ideas... Uh, are still being filtered through an ultimately like capitalist society and capitalist world and so you're going to want to try to navigate that and sift that out and really get the nuggets of gold within these ideas I don't see states um, and I think y'all would agree with me being the path out of you know utter climate catastrophe Um, for those who have been reading like you know, against the green and, you know, Graeber's work, we would know that states have been pretty equal from their very inception. So I think that if bioregionalism would be effective, I think it would be best if it stayed away from that sort of statist um, conception. They do emphasize localism um, as the, you know, political localism, but it's always within the context of, was often within the context of like the relationship between the local and the state and that sort of thing. Almost like a kind of I don't know if I'm using this term correctly, but like minarchism. If that makes sense? Was it yeah. some kind of was it some kind of like municipalism or something like that? But
5: yeah. Yeah, we should probably talk a little bit about like <clears throat> What what minarchism and municipalism are, um, just so people don't get kind of caught up on the terms. Um, and, and particularly, I think that, like, within uh, a context of, like, the United States, um, municipalism is kind of an easier way to sell folks who may be more conservative on certain anarchist principles. It's basically the idea sure. of, yeah, strong community sort of control and autonomy, um, as opposed to a uh, uh, strong overarching kind of federal or state control over over uh, you know different communities.
6: Yeah, yeah. To say anarchoism kind of like a weird grab bag thing. That's like, yeah, it, it's it's sort of like okay. So you want to be an anarcho capitalist, but you can't because you're just smart enough to realize that you can't Capitalism have property rights without states. a state. So either the anarcho state mm-hmm. is the only thing it does is enforce property rights, and yeah, I think that's a Slightly terrifying vision, but I think, but, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's a bit it's, more self
11: aware than the average anarcho capitalist.
6: Yeah, but you know, this is,
11: <laughs> yeah, and I, I think
5: <laughs> that's a little bar, is, is less of a focus specifically on property rights and more of, more based out of an understanding that, um, like strong hierarchical federal, uh, or even state level control, um, generally winds up creating reg- a lot of, a significant amount of like, regional um uh what's the word i'm looking for um inequalities um and and is responsible for a lot of like ecological devastation and whatnot this idea that you can have like like one of the things that you would have with an actual municipalist system is you wouldn't be allowed to operate a company like coke industries that's able to um you know be based out of i think kentucky Um, but operate a series of refineries in the Gulf Coast that uh, render large sections of that area uninhabitable because you would leave kind of uh, control over what can be actually done in that area to the people who live there rather than being able to have um, a corporation buy land there and have its right to pollute enforced by the state, right? That's kind of like one little example. Um, there's right. municipalist. The system in northeast Syria and Rojava is is sort of a municipalist system, and one of the things specifically like,
11: libertarian municipalist. Though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there is a distinction between like municipalism, sure. more generally, and libertarian municipalism.
5: Yeah. yeah, we're we're getting into the weeds a little bit here, but these are these are like that's kind of the basics of what those terms mean. Just so that people don't get lost when you when you bring them up, because I think a lot of folks, um, you know, uh, don't uh, have necessarily that kind of. The, those definitions don't just pop up in their head when you
11: use that word. Right, right, yeah. Fair enough. Um, I also mentioned that states um have been ecocidal from their inception. So I feel like I should probably try and find that as well. Um ecocide and ecocidalism is basically um this idea that came out of the environmentalist movement. Um Meant to points to the severe harm to nature, the mass damage and destruction of ecosystems that's you know caused over decades by you know these companies and really by the system as a whole. So it's often viewed through like a legal lens, as in you know, these um, companies should be tried for their crimes um, and as like for committing ecocide and that kind of thing. It's it's often viewed like as like a legal, like law should be put in place to classify ecocide as a crime and that sort of thing. Um, Only a few um, countries have done that, like actually codified ecocide. But it is something that um, some environmentalists push to, you know, really raise awareness of as a crime against humanity and the planet.
6: Yeah, I think it's also kind of important to understand with ecocide is that like, there's a lot of focus i think in like left like environmental movements just purely on corporations and even if you go back to the like 100 companies meme just like 100 companies destroying the planet it's like well yeah like, like half of them are state-owned yeah and so yeah. you know, yeah yeah this is something like like with ecocide it's like yeah it's like it's not just corporations that do this it's you know it's it's the, the state as a structure it's the state as an institution it's the state as exactly yeah it's their agencies it's their sort of
11: and that's that's what like when really I try to resources. like what I realize is, is kind of important now and I guess this is kind of like slowly like shifting away from bi regionalism, but that's fine. Um what I will say that I've tried to like consciously um sort of put into practice is emphasizing that like capitalism is not the only issue, you know? Um like yeah. I notice people, like, try to separate capitalism and the state as if they could ever truly be separated. Even people who understand that, you know, anarcho-capitalists are misguided and that, you know, the state is necessary to maintain capitalism. There's some sort of, like, disconnect where there's, like, a whole ton of, you know, organization and memeing and all that about capitalism. And, you know, oftentimes these sort of efforts are... Like, particularly with reformist types and unions and stuff, they tried to mediate with capitalism through the state, you know, through the government, whether it be local government or federal government, whatever the case may be. And what I really tried to emphasize is that it's not enough to have, like, a theory of capitalism. I think it's even more important to have a theory of hierarchy because I think it avoids it helps you to avoid getting into these sort of traps of, like, um, well, class reductionism, for one, but also, like, recreating certain structures within your organizations and in your efforts to change things, recreating the very, you know, circumstances you're fighting against.
9: You can't, like, condense everything into one problem because try as we might, it's not that everything is one problem. It's an interconnected mesh that binds all of our problems together. And you can focus on, you know, really big extensions of that mesh, but it still is kind of just the mesh. And the mesh isn't the thing, but it connects to the edges of all of the things. And yeah, that type of ecology can be useful in even even relating to bioregions um, in terms of, how they also connect with other territories and entities.
6: I think it also, you know, I mean, this is one of the sort of problems that you have if, you know, it's like, okay, so your plan is to take sort of sovereign state power. And it's like, well, you do it, right? But I mean, the thing is, if, if you, if you you know, you seize control of power of a state, right? Your borders are essentially just like where the state's war machine ran out of steam. And, you know, and this, this becomes enormous problem because like, I mean, if, if if you look at the bioregional maps, right? It's like there's there, you, there's literally no way you could ever have states with these borders, no. because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not like this. It's, it's impossible. Like you just you, you you cannot do it. And you know what that means is that states are sort of necessarily going well. They're either going to be like a small fraction of a bioregion, or they have multiple in them. And that's another sort of that becomes a sort of logistical problem because, you know, like if if you want to look at like a lot of the worst sort of. Ecological sort of like human disasters. It's when you get states attempting to apply, like states you know, logic
11: a, to environmental issues.
6: Yeah, yeah. And more specifically, like it, it's it's you know they, they have something that like sort of works in one test environment, and then they broadly apply it across you know an enormous sort of variety of yeah areas and regions yeah. that have their own biospheres and have their own and that stuff. That's like that's like the fastest way to kill an enormous number of people. Yeah, so I just <laughs> like
9: like forcing a jigsaw piece that obviously doesn't fit into a spot where you want it to but you're just breaking the pieces
11: i just want to say as well that like that sort of i mean at least the states are testing it right um i remember i can't remember the exact name of like the the sort of like ideology or whatever i think it was like this early soviet union probably one of y'all know the name this early soviet union practice related to like farming that they just applied over like a vast, vast region end up with like a huge decrease in like food production. I can't remember the name of it. Lysenko. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just had this, he had this theory and he was just like pushing it and yeah, it led to some serious issues.
6: Yeah, and I think, you know, if if we're going to talk about like what's important about sort of bi-regionalism, it's you have to have, if if you're going to implement anything right you, you you know' especially when you're trying to sort of manipulate biospheres you're trying to preserve biospheres you have to have local knowledge from the people who have been living in these biospheres for you know enormous amounts of time and that's something that states are really bad at and you know tend to actively suppress and it's something you know and I, I will say this there, there's 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 a kind of like there's like a kind of neoliberal version of this stuff where it's like oh we'll do no lo, we'll have like local knowledge blah 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 and then they're like well we'll, we'll have local knowledge uh uh, but they that this will help them create market solutions to things. It's like that also doesn't work at yeah, all. You know, it's basically just them. To marketize like
11: yeah, that because that 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 really like sits. That doesn't sit well with me, you know. Like yeah, these the sort of like you see like and you see a lot of liberals like doing it a lot these days, where they'd be like doing the whole land acknowledgements thing, and they'd be doing the um. That thing where they would just like say that, oh, this is from so and so culture and whatever. And then just like, boom. And it's then 1999. Car- yeah, car-
9: carry on with business as usual.
11: Yeah. Which is, like, I-, I learned this technique from so and so tribe. No, let me work as a consultant for your company. Kind yep. of thing. And it sucks. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Yeah. It's,
9: the, it's, commo- it's commodifying the thing. And yeah. that, that both, Produces a warped replication, and then it also kind of makes the original thing seem like used in a weird way as well. Like it wasn't designed. Tainted. to be... yeah,
11: yeah, yeah. I was reminded a bit of alienation and how we are just sort of separated from you know aspects of our actual humanity because of the structures we live under, right? So instead of relating with the environment or relating with our culture or relating with other people. We're just relating through, like, these commodities and these products and these, you know, just bastardized versions of things. And um, I think that is also something that sort of plagues, like, some environmentalists. This, this, it's even so this, there's almost like this subtle alienation from the nature that, um, many of them seek to preserve, right? Where on the one hand, yes, you're trying to, you know, preserve it and protect it and that's commendable. But on the other hand, the way you're going about it is basically like antithetical to those goals because you don't have that connection with the nature that you're trying to help, you know. What I see like a lot of people not recognizing is that you know humans are a part of nature, right? And this is another bi-regional concept, right? This thing called bi-regional reinhabitation, in it in being that um meaning that we must come home to the geographical and biophysical terrain we inhabit, understand its ecological uniqueness and familiarize ourselves with the stories woven into the fabric of said land. It's history, it's peoples, it's cultures, it's flora, it's fauna. You know, it's only once we come home to our bioregions and to our ecosystems, to our places, that we can really work together to see its potential, to see how we fit into it, how we can facilitate its healing, you know, bioregion by bioregion.
9: Yeah, that definitely mirrors stuff I've been working on relating to that type of like cognitive dissonance that you're talking about, and that alienation, not just from like human to human, but human to inv- human to place. Because yeah, we have like developed this like this commodified othered version of nature that isn't actually what nature is. Um, yeah. it's 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 we've formed this thing that is separate from us, which is not how we need to think about it cuz it should be we are all part of the same of 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 that same system we are not separate from it and we're not isolated from it or its effects we are just another part of it so it's about getting in like getting a sense of ecology with both your bioregion and then the biosphere as 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 a whole and getting that ecology which kind of will break down this notion of nature being an other and, and i think because of the idea of nature being another that really kind of fosters our extraction that's led to a, our, our our current problems because we don't view exactly. the problems affecting us we view them as a as affecting the territory and if we're if, if we're not the territory then we can be safe but that's not the exactly case.
11: exactly there's also, sorry go on
6: I think i think i may have talked about this on the show before but you know th- there's another aspect here which is that viewing humans as sort of like separate from like this abstract nature is how you get a lot of really bad, like racist environmentalism. Like I, if if you haven't read the trouble with wilderness by yeah. Cronin, the trouble with wilderness is one of the things that like, if if you you study, yeah. if, If you do environmental studies at all, like this is one of the first things they hand you. And the reason they hand it to you is because it, You know, so like the 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 image of wilderness that we have is this sort of like, oh, it's this like completely untapped thing, and it's like, well, yeah, okay. So the the reason the reason we have this image of like a wilderness with nothing in it is because there used to be people there and we killed them all. Yep. Or forcibly Mm, deported them. Yeah. Like when the Europeans
11: pulled up and stuff in North America. Yeah, yeah, and it's officially like like, 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 untouched wilderness. Well, and the yeah, those forests were literally planted and cultivated. Those forests were. I think even
5: more pointedly, you should it should be stated those forests were a work of engineering that's on par with the pyramids at Giza, if not Absol- like absolutely, it, ma- yeah. a- massively in excess of it. They are, they are a work of engineering that's every bit as impressive as any city ever built, um, and every bit is like intense and required as much knowledge and scientific understanding. People just. All we had—all of those people had died by the time
6: white folks yeah. got yeah. Well, there, generally it, it, because it, of the
5: spread of disease or just because I of think, act, like
6: yeah, like I—I I th- I think that's true, especially on the East Coast. But like with the West Coast, I think it's even grimmer because the West Coast, you, you and this—this this happened. You—you you still see this where like a, lo- a lot of like the American national parks were literally like like people would go in and ethnically cleanse the population that was there. Yeah, and then be like, "Oh, hey, look! It's, it's now wilderness. This is now, and this this is like the origin of, of the environmental movement. It's all of these like, just like the most racist people you've ever yep. seen in your life, like yeah. people <laughs> literal like, fascists. Like, yeah, well, I, and even 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 before them, like in you know like like early nineteen early eighteen hundreds, like not, sorry, or, or late eighteen yeah, hundreds, no, people like those guys, the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. like when, when 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 those guys are talking about like the purity of the wild, like." They're everything they think about the wilderness is also just about the purity of the white race, and it's it's awful. Yeah, and and if I, if, if when you, when you start making that this like that the separation between humans and nature, like that's that's how you get this like that's how that's how you get these you know ethnic <sighs> cleansing like genocide
5: yeah, like, yeah. forests. I, I've it's, been reading this very good book. Uh, just started last night, and I think we're going to have the author on the show soon. Uh, Chris Begley, he's an underwater archaeologist, and he wrote a book called The Next Apocalypse that's about collapses throughout history and how they actually differ from the popular conceptions of them. And he actually talks about a lot of the stuff we talk about in this show. Um, and one of the points he makes is that the, this idea of like lost cities in dark jungles and whatnot um is based entirely on misconceptions, first of all, about like what jungles are. and then second on like the these these very Eurocentric ideas towards what lost means. Like he points out that every time there's been a lost city or civilization discovered, it's because archeologists just like ask the people living there where the ruins were. And they're like, Oh yeah, it's like right over there. Like we we've known about this since forever. It was never lost. We just stopped (laughs) living in that specific area. And the other thing he points out is that like, this idea of a jungle as like a difficult and primeval place is ridiculous. If you had to pick anywhere to be stranded in the world of in terms of bioregions, you would pick a jungle like the yes. Amazon because it's pretty easy to survive there. That's why people live there for so long. Like, yeah. There's and a ton of, food. of the Amazon. The <laughs> yeah. Amazon
11: was, you know, as We've discovered, you know, there were cities and stuff happening yeah. in the Amazon. You know, it was like a planted, yeah. cultivated. There's place, food you know. jungle,
5: like food forests and whatnot is the term people use within yeah. the jungle. Like people set the ju- people set the jungle in the Amazon up to provide them with food in a way that isn't exactly isn't the same as like what we consider to be agriculture, but is absolutely a yeah. kind of agriculture.
11: And because people don't see it as agriculture, it's like, oh, oh, well, that's just you know. They were just running around in the forest before we arrived, you know? It's like, hoo-hoo.
5: Yeah. No, they had they had essentially built themselves a big smart house in, in the middle of uh, <laughs> the woods that provided them with everything they needed um, with upkeep that we would consider minimal based on, like, what a lot of our European ancestors certainly, like, did in terms of labor to keep farms going. Like, if you compare... I mean, you could also talk about how, like, peasants in the medieval period probably worked less than a lot of people in the United States do today. Yeah, like,
6: everyone works less than we do now.
5: (laughs) But it's it's a lot harder to keep, like, a monoculture farm going than it is to to keep a food forest going.
11: Um, Yeah, because, I mean, once it's established, it literally maintains itself. Mm Mm-hmm. What was the name of the book that you were talking about just now? Uh, it's called it The up.
5: Next Apocalypse and it's it's very good so far. Um, Chris Begley is the author. I think we're going to have him on next week. But um, yeah, I've, I've found awesome. it so far about a third of the way in. Very good. Awesome.
6: I'll check that out.
9: Okay. Who wants to say we're back?
11: You just did That's it. the intro now. I, I know. That <laughs> intro just now. brought turn, us back, baby. The turn. That's, That's the exit and pivot. Are. You're welcome. Here we are. Awesome. So yeah, once we have like embraced our understanding that you know we belong to the land and not vice versa and was therefore pattern ourselves and our societies face and its needs um you know that's when we get to that place of bioregional regeneration which is another key concept of bioregionalism and lastly there's the concept of bioregional sensibility which was developed by mitchell thomas and it's about developing the observational skills to observe the bioregional history, to develop the conceptual skills to juxtapose, you know, the scale of, you know, the community and the region and the the ecosystem, the bioregion, all these different levels, ability to like think in terms of all of them, to develop the imaginative faculties to really, I would say, play with multiple landscapes and to develop the compassion to empathize with and work with both local and global neighbors, not just local and global human neighbors, but also you know the flora and fauna living next door. There are a lot of different um, bi-regional practices happening all over the world. Um, I did note that it started in North America, but I noticed that a lot of the big projects are happening in, in like, South America, you know, in Brazil, Sinaldo Vale, uh, in Costa Rica, Regenerativa, in Colombia, Regenerativa, and the Annapurna Pluriversity in the Himalayas as well. And many others, they're basically engaging in efforts involving applied education, regenerative agriculture, systems mapping, green belt restoration. There's the, you know, the green belt project in Africa as well. And these are all efforts to really understand and work with the bioregions that these people inhabit. So just a few tips that I wanted to end this off with, you know, before we end things off. Um, I always try to link um, the things that I talk about in some way to what people and the groups they're part of, the organizations they're part of, the communities they're part of can do you know as an action to strengthen their resilience or to develop you know autonomy right in this case it is to strengthen resilience and also to develop the vitality of the bioregion you inhabit so first of all i think it's important that we learn as much as we can about our areas and learn especially through action Um, whether it be through cleanups, you know, observing the space around you, whether it be through observing weather patterns, um, whether it be through looking at the going on hikes and looking at the way that the temperature changes and the texture of the soil changes as you go up and down in, um, altitude. I think it's also important to try to get involved with actions to, um, restore natural features and to understand the place that those natural features have in the broader bioregion. Of course, there are lots of sustainable projects happening all over the world. You know, if they aren't in your area, um, be the change you want to see, start one, make it happen. And really also I would say, find ways to link projects for environmental sustainability and restoration with projects for human emancipation. Find ways to like support access to, you know, basic human needs within your locality to find ways to sort of, because when we speak of bioregions and, you know, living within our bioregions and so so on and so forth, that's all well and good. But if, for example, your region has to import a whole bunch of food all the time to support the population, I think there needs to be ways to um, decrease that sort of import and to find ways to um, live sustainably within the area. Raise awareness, of course, as well, um, about bioregional thinking, systems thinking, social ecological thinking. And yeah, just get to work, anti-work work, prefiguring the structures of a more horizontal bio ethical and sustainable way of life and of course disrupt the projects that get in the way of those goals and i say that as tentatively as i can to avoid legal trouble that's it take care everyone and be kind to every thing. peace me
6: Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that is remarkably today not really so much about things falling apart and is mostly about things, in fact, getting better and how we can do that. Um, I'm your host, Christopher. Uh, with me today is Garrison, and we're also joined by Nick and Max, who are two members of the artist collective Solar Punk Surf Club, who have released a very, very interesting new game that we are here in part to talk about called Solar Punk Futures. Um, hello, Nick. Hi, Max. How, how are you two doing?
12: Hey, doing well. Thanks. Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having us on.
6: Yeah, excited to have you two on. So, I guess my first question is how did you two get into game design and sort of first have the idea to do a sort of like political gaming project like
12: this? It's a good question. So, we're not, um, we're definitely not game designers by profession or trade. Um, We're members of the Artist Collective Solar Punk Surf Club, and we're particularly interested in creating artwork and social practice that prefigures these kinds of egalitarian futures that we'd like to see in the world. And so this game was something that we've been kind of a, a project that we've been thinking about and sitting on for a little while, and... Was kind of something that made us excited, got us excited, and we think there's a, a whole bunch of other reasons that we think it's a really cool um, project to work on, an important project, and um, yeah, so uh, we kind of took a took a deep dive headfirst into the world of game design and learning how to how to do that over the past year or so.
6: Okay, so how about we I guess also start with. I guess explaining what SolarPunk Futures is and sort of how it works, and then we can get into the sort of political aspect of the sort of game design project.
13: So SolarPunk Futures is a storytelling game where players imagine pathways to a desirable future by collaboratively overcoming real-world challenges. The object of the game is to collectively remember one of the stories that grew into our utopia. Um, the idea is that through backcasting, where you assume within the context of the game that players are already in utopia and merely remembering back to their ancestors struggle, that players can transcend the idea that what currently exists must necessarily exist, which, social theorist Murray Bookchin described as the acid that corrodes all visionary thinking. So we wanted to make a system to facilitate collaborative performance, sort of a, we call it a collaborative performance of memory, but one that combines sincerity with laughter and speculative storytelling.
12: The game also combines... A lot of different elements that we saw in other games, Um, collaborative, you know, collaborative storytelling, cooperative gameplay, uh, some elements of role playing and different kind of mechanics that we thought would build out that kind of, like I said earlier, those prefigurations of those egalitarian worlds. So we were trying to, you know, we're trying to make a game that had the fiction and the idea of utopia built in uh in terms of the goals of the game but it was also we wanted to build it into some of the mechanics of how the game is actually played too
6: um uh, my, my question from here is sort of well i mean i guess firstly is i think what sort of specifically drew you to solar punk as sort of an aesthetic for for this like i know there's been a lot of sort of like the kind of social ecology solar punk fusions but i'm interested in what drew you specifically to it
13: So we see solar punk as a visionary utopian politics and aesthetic that critically engages the reality of capitalist catastrophe while maintaining a radical optimism about humanity's hopes for a communal ecological future. Nick was just speaking to this. Um, We see it as a restorative justice process on a planetary scale, among people, between humans and non-human nature. So that means reclaiming pieces of the past, pre-capitalist culture. Um, That means material accountability for old practices. And it also means radical adaptability towards new ones. I think it provided a, a useful way of synthesizing several currents that we had already been thinking about and involved in between new media and social practice thinking not just about images and objects in space but also the set of social relations that those things produce
12: yeah we're also we're like partisans within solar punk i don't think there's i don't think there's too many pro capitalists within solar punk but i think there are some people who are maybe drawn to the aesthetic but don't necessarily have a politics, uh, but we do think that there's a kind of a latent horizontalism, a latent anarchistic politics in a lot of the aesthetics around solarpunk, and so uh, as a as a collaborative as an aesthetic that is being defined collaboratively by people online and and elsewhere. You know, we wanted to kind of stake out a position about what we thought a really realistic utopian world might look and feel like
6: yeah and i think there's something else i know youtube i'm very passionate about um is about specifically using games as a medium to do this and sort of and this as like this kind of storytelling remembrance as a specifically political intervention so could you talk a bit more about you know like yeah you know the questions like okay so why this and not on you know on the sort of less mo- like like why this and not guerrilla gardening why this and not some other kind of organizing etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, yeah I'm interested to hear what you'd say about that
12: yeah well I'm not going to hate on guerrilla gardening I definitely it's, think it's, it's a both end cool. situation <laughs> yeah um, it's
13: also in the game
12: yeah that's true it's it's one of the cards uh, one of the tools that you get to use uh, uh, <laughs> as an ancestor um, yeah I think. You know, there's a lot of different things that we were thinking about when we were thinking about why a game uh, that I got a little bit into earlier. But, you know, for one, um, I think it helps reach a broad and often depoliticized audience uh, with a a fun way to kind of engage in some thorny political questions. I think that games as a participatory medium were especially interesting for people who are interested in sort of uh, anarchistic uh, modes of teaching and education, like education through doing, rather than lecture. Uh, although, you know, we're, we also read a lot of good political theories, so I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. Um, and then I, th- I think, uh, you know, games are also fun. And there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, political organizing and activism work that happens out there that feels that's hard and that is necessary to do. But just because a lot of the important work to be done is hard doesn't mean everything that's hard is important and everything that's fun is, you know, trifling or not going to help us get where we're going and, and overthrow capitalism and build a new world. So um, yeah, those are, those are some of the reasons.
6: And, yeah. And I think that's especially sort of interesting point because I think a lot of what happens in leftist spaces, you get a bunch of people doing stuff and they burn out really fast because, you know, you're doing an enormous amount of work it's all miserable. A lot of the times you're getting physically assaulted. And like, I think that's one of the things that was interesting to me about this is you need other forms of sort of community building and sort of like, you you need other forms of organizing that do not involve you being repeatedly traumatized over and over again. And that, yeah. And especially just, working on something like this and then I don't know just playing with your friends and have, having things that are like collaborative and joyful and community building is I think very important as a way to just you know even just this is on a very basic logistical level like prevent people from burning out
12: yeah and and I definitely think that there's a, a role there to prevent people from burning out and and inspiring people with some of the Fun ideas, the ideas that they come up with when they're not looking at a Google Doc meeting notes, yeah. <laughs> but instead they're playing a card game and maybe drinking a couple of beers. And they're like, oh, how would I combine guerrilla gardening and, um, you know, performance art to bring about, you know, to solve a specific challenge of capitalism, like deforestation? Or, or uh, these are some of the cards in the game. Um, and so I think it can be inspiring. It, you know, it's also, um, it can be educational. I, I played with some family. Uh, I think the first time I played when we got the physical copy that wasn't a play test was with some family. And they don't necessarily identify as leftists of any kind. But we had a really fun game where we explored ideas of, deconstructing borders and uh you know they were it wasn't like i was guiding them in this direction it was just kind of the assumption of the game that there was utopia got beyond this ingrained capitalist realism that there just isn't that there isn't an alternative and they're like okay well the game says we're already in utopia so that means there's no private property and i was like whoa that's a that's a jump i didn't expect from my uh from my family
9: (laughs) One thing I'm interested in in terms of how it functions as a game is like balancing the actual more I don't know fun based like role playing game elements with like its kind of structure as a thought exercise and like a world building game like how 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 do you approach trying to get a balance of like fun role playing as well as this type of like
13: reverse world building I was kind of, uh, I was still a little bit on the the why a game in the first place question, but I'm also intrigued by the balancing fun and politics question. If you don't mind, I wanted to go back to the why a game for just a second. um, Because I think maybe it will lead into this. Yeah, yeah. Games are, you know, an ancient form of art. I know I said... We work in new media before, but games are actually an ancient form of art. And I would argue social practice. Um, There's a game called Senate. There's a game called the Royal Game of Ur, which both date to 5,000 years ago in ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia, respectively. We did in making the game, we did a bunch of research on the history of of games there's a 15th century game called the game of the goose from uh well present-day italy that paired like these gorgeous illustrations also with like didactic moral instruction in the early early 20th century the surrealists created a a series of games Hmm. um with the intention of breaking through traditional thought patterns and uh, unleashing the the potentials of the unconscious they also wanted to subvert academic modes of inquiry. Um, and then today you know some of our most popular tabletop games, you know you I think Nick was mentioning this earlier how they can sometimes inscribe oppressive logics so you know rather than a game where you're competing against other players to drive them into poverty or a game where, you're trying to colonize other players' land you know for the purpose of world domination. we wanted to make a game that actually practices the cooperation, interdependence, care, consent uh, these things that will be needed you know if we're actually to transcend the social and ecological crises of our day and kind of to that point you know I would say that games always reflect the the beliefs and Norms of their historical context. So, with Solarpunk Futures, we wanted to kind of flip the script and um, project using, you know, the modalities of like speculative fiction, collaborative performance, as I mentioned, the the values and mores of a of a desirable future. So, games are a very, you know, human thing, an ancient human thing. And why do people play games? Uh, as I mentioned, you know, education is part of it, um, but also building social bonds is another important piece, and that always is a company. It's a very, like, academic way of talking about it, maybe, but it is, it is fun. It has to be fun. That's why people do it.
12: Yeah, in terms of the, to get a little deeper into the balancing question, you know, every game is a balance between a bunch of different competing factors. There's a, a lot of people who were talk about the balance between randomness and, planning in in games and the balance um, between structure and freeform. And it's definitely something <laughs> if, if there's any game designers out there thinking about making, you know, games like this playtesting, it will help you so much because, you know, the, the game in a rough form existed in the spring of last year, but playtesting really helped us refine a lot of those questions and find that kind of balance between structure and freeformness. We wanted it to be accessible to people who aren't D&D players, but we've also played with people who play a lot of D&D and GM and all this stuff, and they took it in a lot of fun and wild directions that we didn't expect that helped inform kind of new ways that we could you know, we added some optional rules in there for people who want to take it in a different direction or, or add more complexity or, or even, or for other people who who need a little bit like a handhold and want to flip a coin to decide something rather than, um, you know, come up with it totally on their own. So I think, um, yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to balance, you know, all the different factors that go into a game, but I, I definitely think, Playtesting and all the people who, who who played with us in those early games really helped helped us figure out the right balance.
13: And to your earlier point about burnout, like activist burnout, um, some people who we've invited to play the game maybe have have expressed this idea of like, well, um, I I'd, I'd love to, but I don't have time, and maybe uh, maybe they they think of, of gaming and, and I know I've certainly been guilty of this too, of feeling like guilt over things that feel like an indulgence, like you should be doing the, the real work all the time. But, you know, I think it's important to hold that in the perspective of the tradition of, uh, of feminism, civil rights advocates, others on the left that have talked about the importance of um, joy that needs to be integral to our struggles. There's the famous Emma Goldman quip, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. So perhaps, you know, these ideas of like guilt and shame or martyrdom or whatever need, are kind of toxic parts of the old world that we need to, to let go of. Um, so I guess this is kind of coming back to say that there's, as, as Nick was saying, there is an ethical prefigurative case of... Um, of how games can allow people to um, express themselves through play, but there's also a tactical one, and that games can be a structured way of thinking about how do we create a liberated society.
6: One other thing I think is sort of interesting about well, like I guess this is somewhat less true of tabletop games as a medium because tabletop games are a lot of sort of collaborative storytelling ish stuff but like i know like like so like I, I I play a lot of video games right and it's like it, it's like a lot of the structure of what gaming is is sort of like it, it, it basically just turns into like another job that you have and it's interesting yeah it's like i mean you know and, and you get you like yeah. you get you get the same you, you, you even get like boo like, like crossover between the terminology of like like you know like like i i think like grinding is like a grind yeah yeah, like grind
12: i i think i think that came (laughs) from gaming
6: first and then moved over into the weird grind set
12: stuff but like i think you're right yeah yeah And, uh, and gamification right that's another way that like gaming is being almost like weaponized by capitalism to get squeezed just a little bit more out of everyone
6: yeah, there, there, there's a really interesting article whose name I am forgetting because I am, yeah, I, um, but Vicky Osterwall wrote it like a while ago that was about how, like, games are like, it, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's you sort of mechanically doing the same thing over and over and over again, but it's it's a problem because it's like, it's, it's labor that's like too perfect. Like it doesn't, it doesn't create anything. There's no sort of like, uh, like there's, there's no sort of like, um, like aspect that produces like value that could be extracted. You're just sort of, you're just doing the thing over and over again. And it's like, and you know, and then and th- and that, you know, because the problem for capital in some sense is why there's all these panics about like everyone being addicted to gaming because it's like, well, okay, you're not making money for us. And, uh, but I think it's interesting. Instead of
12: playing truck simulator, you could be driving some actual trucks. Yeah,
6: yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I think it's interesting that this is a political intervention into that, of creating something that's, you know, precisely the opposite of that. That it's, you know, you're not sort of, like, it's not just like an incredible intensification of the sort of like reward systems of working. It's, hey, we're going to come together and we're going to tell, we're going to, you know, make collaborative decisions and overcome challenges. And I think, I think that's a very interesting sort of political angle to come at this from.
12: Yeah. I think a lot of, a, a lot of tabletop games in particular compared to video games, I think, well, I'll say role-playing games in particular, put you in a driver's seat in a way that I think can, is, is hard, right? Like sometimes I'm too tired to, I, or I, I think, I'm, you know, I have a, I have a D&D night and I'm like, I don't know if I have the energy for this after working all day. Um, whereas I might have energy to play, you know, a, a video game RPG that kind of walks me, th- you know, handholds me through a story. Um, it's kind of more like watching more passive. Um, but I do think that there's, I just think there's something so important about thinking through what it might be like to live in this utopian society and it's important I think because if we don't well for one a ton of people just don't even think about it (laughs) Um, and so to the extent that this game is something that gets bought or played with families of people who are you know one of the many people who have been depoliticized in this country um, I think that can be really helpful but I also think that um I've played it and I've found really fun and exciting ideas that I wouldn't have thought about if I was staring at a power map or something and thinking where can we intervene in my city to you know help help solve this or that problem. So I think yeah, I think there's power there.
6: So I think one of the other things I think st- interesting to me about how you two sort of the team put this project together is that it's also like, you know, so like you can buy the versions of it that have like very, very nice art, but you also just put the cards and the rules up for free and you can just sort of print and play it. So I wonder, yeah, if you could talk a bit about decision to do that.
13: Democratic accessibility is really important to us. It's part of the concept that we wanted to integrate into every aspect of the game's production and distribution and so, yeah, the whole thing is available as a free print and play PDF download. Um, it's all Creative Commons licensed. Um, so that's, yeah. And, you know, at the same time, as you mentioned, we, we uh, are interested in materiality and want, wanted to create um, something that could, could accompany, you know, a face-to-face interaction as well which is you know frankly well i'll just speak for myself that's probably more my interest um even though i think you know like that we have a tabletop simulator version too which i think is really cool but as far as the decision to make the game you know free free forever um we want people to play we want it to be genuinely useful um this is not a this is not a capitalistic business venture. Uh, <laughs> we're running a break even budget and want to just keep doing projects and mm-hmm. you know elaborating like the solar punk tradition and connecting it to social ecological communalist politics. So if this can be a catalyst towards being able to do more of that, then um, then that's you know we'll have we'll have succeeded on our on our terms at least. What's the status of physical
9: copies? How can people, if they want to use uh, cards and stuff, what is how, how would one go about getting those?
12: Yeah, so there's a couple different ways. People can uh, download the free print and play if they like. Uh, if they really love it, they want to buy the physical copy. We sold out of the f- kind of first edition that we were able to afford to print. But we're raising money on Kickstarter for a second edition, uh, so if people back us at a certain tier there, I think it's $45 or higher, uh, you'd get a copy of the game uh, when we're able to print them. Uh, and so, yeah, so it's a... Um, and, of course, as Max mentioned, you can also play on Tabletop Simulator. Uh, but, yeah, we're, we're really excited about it. I think we're also hoping to take it around to some... You know, political workshops uh, probably on Zoom for the foreseeable future. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, Um, maybe game convention, tabletop game conventions, and stuff, Uh, and also some art art shows. um, To be announced, but uh, there's a couple art shows that we're excited to be showing it in. So, um,
9: yeah, yeah. One one thing I'm really excited about in terms of playing this at some point is the. I think starting from the point of like, you're trying to build the world now, you can really easy, it's really easy to run into ruts. Um, Starting at the end point and then working backwards, I think because that produces that reverse type of thought, I think it's a little bit easier for it to find the path than just starting here and looking at the world and being like, oh, how do we do anything to make it better? Instead of being at the opposite place and being like, "What's what is the way to backtrack?" I think can maybe give you some connections and ideas that you may not have had otherwise, because we're kind of always stuck in the now. How do we get to now better? So I'm, I would be very excited to uh, try try this out at some point and uh, and experience that backtrack thinking because I think it's. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm really uh, intrigued with that specific aspect of the game because yeah, the, I'm su- I'm sure there's going to be a lot of solar punk games within the next decade probably, um, and this is one aspect that I think actually is really unique and something that's not just intrinsic to solar punk. Um, you know, it's something that's kind of been added on. So uh, th- that's something I'm really excited about, and yeah, would love to love to uh, pick this up uh, soon.
13: Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, I think one of the things that we hope that the game does is help people break through that capitalist realism. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, there is no alternative. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, yeah. et cetera. Um, and, you know, similarly, if you ask people to imagine the future, uh, it's very hard. It yeah. is, and uh, it, yeah. And if they are able to at all, it is often extrapolating sort of the worst trends of today into a dystopian future.
6: Um, yeah, I, I remember uh, it's slightly off topic, but I remember so when when I was in I was in middle school or something, we had this assignment where we had to like re- write a you like write what our perfect like utopian society would be. And we like did it and like 3 quarters of the like societies people come up with were just like the worst imaginable dystopia and it was just like <laughs> it's just
12: such, like grim sort of <laughs> Yeah, if I was going to if I was going to make what I thought was an accurate prediction of the future. It, it, it might be more similar to the first season of this podcast than, uh, some of the hopeful futures, but I don't, I also don't think, I don't think the door is closed on any kind of solar punk future. I think it's important. One of the important aspects that we included that, that is, that makes solar punk different than just kind of vague utopianism is that we, we ask people to also think about the barriers they run into, to think about, you know, what, who's going who's gonna to oppose you uh, if you're trying to, um, you know, deal with uh, polluted water and you find some really great uh, system and improve a region's water supply. You know, Nestle might come in and buy the rights to the whole region, the whole watershed. So, you know, imagining those that opposition, the material conditions that might change, uh, and how you would adapt to them. We hope that's something that people also benefit from uh, who play this game and and make some predictions about the strategic decisions that capital is going to make
13: to oppose your your utopian vision. And I hope there are more solar punk games. Uh, like you said, I hope there's a preponderance of solar punk art in the, in the next decade. That'd be amazing. And, you know, to what you were just saying, you're right. Solar punk doesn't mean the end of politics, doesn't mean the absence of conflict. Um, so I think we tried to integrate that into the game. What makes a good solar punk story is that it is plausible yet distinctly anti-utopian, anti-dystopian rather, um, it you know, provides a, a glimpse into a future possibility for, say, the reharmonization of humans with other humans, humans with non-human nature. Um, and that is going to involve some amount of opposition on the one hand and reconstruction on the other, in short, to, to critique by building, as the slogan goes.
6: All right, yeah, uh, plugs time. What do you you two have plugs? (laughs)
13: Uh,
12: So, yeah, we have an upcoming uh, live stream on Twitch with Veterans for Peace. They have uh, some gamers for peace. And Tuesday night uh, on the 18th at 8 p.m., they're going to be playing Solar Punk Punk Futures with us. Uh, If people are interested in the game, they can download it for print and play on our website at http colon slash slash thefuture.wtf. Uh, and uh, people can also find the link to our Kickstarter on that website if they're interested in pre-ordering a uh, physical copy, which we'd very much appreciate. We're, we're we're getting close to funded.
6: That's very exciting. I hope I hope I hope I hope it gets funded. I want to see more of these because the art is extremely cool. And yeah, well, thank, thank you to you for coming on. Uh, this this has been it could happen here, and we'll see you the next time an episode goes up. I don't know when that's going to be right now. So yeah, wonderful extras.
5: Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
7: It could happen here as a production of cool zone media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening.
3: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
10: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride.